Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning. Happy Monday, everyone. And welcome to Greenwash with me and Dawn. Gosh, what a what a weekend it has been. What are your reactions? Do you think things went as you thought they would? Uh, I thought there would be a, a greater landslide to the centre and centre-right. I mean, I can hardly say a right of centre because it's <laughs> not really much of a right of centre coalition likely, but it is hanging in the balance right now. And um, it will be interesting to see what happens in Port Waikato by-election. Uh, it's not uh, as dominant as I would have expected, and it, it looked like it was going to be more dominant early in the night, uh, but it mm. became less so as the night went on. So, look, yeah, maybe maybe by November 3, which is the day that I think the election results have to be declared, oh, yeah, there's got to be a new government Fine, formed. Yeah, uh, we'll have more clarity. So we are up in the air a bit. But, yeah, there's nothing uh, good about having a one-seat majority at the moment without New Zealand First with you. Completely. This is the drubbing that uh, one would have thought uh, well, this uh, last comment would have got us nowhere to the level where I thought it should have been. And that is very strange to me. What have we learned from the last six years? Oh, well, not much by the look of it. There's a couple of things that are pertinent to me in the last three to four weeks mm. that mainstream media seem to realize that National and ACT were going to be building up quite a strong coalition. And they brought to the table a whole lot more fervor about New Zealand First coming back. And they built up Winston Peters and his party to mm. a great extent as the big leveler for the block of National and ACT. And it's worked. It's worked. It has really taken the edge off, especially ACT. And I'm, a, I'm amused, or unamused actually about why Seymour bit like a big fish uh, when when all this happened. And Seymour, all he had to do, in my opinion, was show a little bit of, mm, maybe I got it wrong over mandates, uh, like Winston Peters is saying, and cut yeah. Winston Peters' lunch in return. But he's he just couldn't swallow any of his pride, could he, David? And I, I think it's cost him dearly. I think it's yep. cost him dearly. But, but he, my personal encounter with David Seymour, that would be par for the course for uh, that gentleman. Hmm. That's it. Well, it's all about him. Well, yeah, I'd, I'd like to think he's bigger than that. And I think he will have to be in the years <laughs> ahead. Um, but it's a, it saddens me that there's some people that were on his list um, that have missed out who were incumbents like Tony Severin. I mean, she's not a high flyer, but she's loyal to the party and she's now gone. Um, and the other side of it, I did really think they would get 15 to 20 MPs and really put the wood on national. And they just are not going to do that to the level that I I thought. The other thing that, that gets me is to have a good person. Uh, you know, I don't like using the term conservative. Um, and just like I don't like using the term progressive because it seems to be a left of centre um, you know, edge to that. Well, I would call a left of centre regressive, not progressive. So I would have called Simon O'Connor one of the best on climate change stuff National had. He was a conservative politician, but they had uh, they put the act number two up against him and he and he got cleaned out and he was number fifty-four on the National Party list. Why wasn't he up high on the National Party list? Because there were so many shoe and electorate candidates on that list that it makes no sense to have him so far down. But 
you know, it just shows you, I think he must have fallen out with his leader. Yeah, and for uh, for National Party, where the leader, Christopher Luxon, supposedly is, as he says, a very conservative Christian mm. with uh, certain views that might fall foul of the progressives he have today, one wouldn't have thought Simon O'Connor would be that far down the list. But a good well, man in a bad place? I don't know. Uh, well, I, he may have um, crossed the line with his leader sometime in the past. Mind you, Maureen Pugh crossed the line. She ended up number 26 on the list and got back in as an electorate uh, candidate as well. So, you know, so as an electorate candidate. So she obviously did her penance and um, perhaps Simon hasn't. But Simon uh, um, could have easily been in the ACT Party, as far as I'm concerned. He was definitely saying decent stuff when I watched him in, on, uh, in the parliament. So... He's a great loss to Parliament on the right of centre, I would have thought. Big time. And mm. how about all the ones that have come back? Some of your old favourites. Um, yeah, my old favourites. And yeah, there was there was, you know, had the um my landslide prediction come to pass, there would have been a lot of Labour incumbents um made into toast. But sadly, there's a whole bunch of them. You know, there, they've been there so long, some of them. Do they not read the tea leaves and, and see that, you know, their time's up? Let's hope there's going to be um, a fair chunk of replacement going on. Uh, replacement therapy is needed in in some of those parties. It is. I, um, I know that sounds biased, but everyone knows my bias. They've, you know, our listeners know that I, I've stood for act in the past, so you can't expect me to be um, unbiased when I talk about politics. <laughs> Yes, uh, just fair. That is all. Uh, the other thing I feel is uh, a sense of personal responsibility, regardless. And I, you know, people were asking me over the last week before elections, what do you think and what's going to happen? And I said, well, one thing, the only thing I can be sure about is nothing can take the place of radical self-responsibility. Absolutely nothing. And we will all live to fight another day. This ain't over, whatever you and I and all the others, many others who are now seeing the light have been fighting. This is not going to change just because the government has changed. The bureaucrats uh, remain there. The N number of non-governmental organizations, NGOs, they remain there. The agendas are still there. You can reword them, tweak them a bit, you know, mess around the edges. It's not changing a whole heap. I looked the morning tea uh, Monday today, right now, um, pretty much as we're going live, uh, this uh, there will be lots of chats about what the future is for each department mm. and government and local government, but they'll still have their lunch and they'll still have their afternoon tea and they'll still be there next week. Uh, it is now about what Luxon and, oh, sorry, I should call him the Prime Minister because that's respectful, the p incoming Prime so what is he, the incoming prime minister, potentially? He's not, yep. not clearly um, that at the moment. Uh, they have to do what they said they'd do. And it was quite minor in the scheme of things relative to the expansion of government in the last six years. What National and ACT have talked about, how ACT is talking about $6 billion a year out of government spending, so $25 billion over four years. That's, that's just touching the sides compared to the damage that's been done in the last six years. So, uh, you know, I, I just hope the brakes go on yep. very hard, very quickly. Um, uh, yeah. Considering what you and I are talking about, that what has changed and what has not changed, the overseas headlines following these elections are very strange to me. 
though I should say not strange, one would expect media to go like this. Bloodbath election, says the Daily Mail. New Zealand chooses resoundingly a very conservative government. Most conservative government in decades, says the New York Times. Bloodbath, all of this, this is... Oh, ridiculous. And and one says um, the most right-wing government since 1990. Um, <laughs> goodness me. New Zealand right-wing government. So it's not Italy. It's not, um, you know, a lot of Europe's heading um, far more. Uh, if you want to use the term that I talked about before, conservative, then let's take it. But um, to me, it's about common sense politics. And, uh, you know, there's plenty of countries in the world waking up having the big reality check. Big reality check. And some of what Luxon said on Saturday, you know, his exact words were I, that they're pledging to govern on behalf of every New Zealander, wherever they are, whoever they are, and what, whatever their life circumstances, regardless of ethnicity and whether our families arrived generations ago or are new migrants, we all share an interest in living in a safe, stable country that celebrates fairness and wants the very best for every New Zealander. I can't help but think when uh, Jacinda said this after the last elections, we are the party that's going to govern for every New Zealander. Well, look how well that went. Yeah, yeah, great. Uh, the divisiveness in this country is unbelievable at the moment. Um, that Some of the key perpetrators are back in Parliament, but... Um, one of the prime movers, uh, Nanaima Hoot, is gone. Uh, but but guess her her effects will be felt through her successes. Her job's done. Yeah. Her job's done. Yeah. Mm. And uh, so here's the thing that gets me really resoundingly. Well, it's a really um, annoying result. Sorry, it's not resounding for me. It's annoying that the um, left of centre, the extreme left of centre in the Greens, and they are they're, they're communists. They are um, in Wellington and Auckland central seats and one other Wellington suburban seats. I don't know what's wrong with you, uh, the people that vote for those people. They have no understanding of basic economics and where their lifeblood comes from. And it makes me angry that we have um, people in New Zealand uh, arrogant enough to vote Greens uh, when uh, the, at the same time they push the people that create the economy uh, around so look let's hope those people get no power no say and no more influence i've had enough of them uh, but you know that's just me it would be for the incoming government to see how quickly they set the tone well their tone is nasty it's all nasty everything i mean i'm sorry i'm talking about the greens not the, not yeah, the yeah, new yeah, government yeah. yeah this nastiness that they've created if, if i sound nasty put me in the same room with uh marima davidson and let's see what nasty looks like. Uh, I just can't take the the, um, the 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 noise that comes out of her mouth, the spite, the hatred, the racism, the whole damn lot. Her, she would be better in in China. Yeah, pretty ragged, isn't it? I know I'm I'm ranting and I'm I'm losing it, so I'd better back off. No, you're fine. You're fine, and that is a there is no two ways about it, Don seeing many of these candidates come through in these are urban strongholds and these are places where the brainwashing has gone on long enough the greenwashing has gone on long enough for people to actually you know just go along with this now it's just too uh, hard to buck the trend well as you keep unbundling jasper the tentacles of all of the agendas you talk about the sdgs have fed these people um uh 
their their lifeblood really um, through grants that 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 the real working people in New Zealand fund and, and their institutional institutions have actually let us down. They've been, as you say, brainwashed and um, any type of washing goes on okay with, with that edge of town. But isn't it odd how downtown metropolitan New Zealand seems to be okay with living that lie? Because it is a lie if you think you can live like that and um, push around the productive side of New Zealand. Yeah, it is. With, with your influence because of the metropolitan vote. I mean, metropolitan New Zealand is controlling pretty much the way we, we, we're governed at the moment. So, you know, and on top of that, um, I suppose I've got to say congratulations to the Maori Party, the Te Party Maori. Uh, you know, they've done their job. Uh, they, they, they got the backwash from the Labour meltdown and um, lucky them. But, uh, yeah, the green fringe is the bits that, that really gets me going. But let's look at the good news from across the Tasman this yeah. last weekend. The voice referendum that was going to change Australia, because that's the only way you can change the Australian constitution, mm. to permanently entrench an Aboriginal voice, the details of which, despite the government spending over $350 million on trying to push the yes vote, the details were never revealed. Because there are people in Australia, I mean, politicians who are saying, who opposed the yes vote, who said, at least let us know the workings of how this voice is going to work. And maybe we already have the resources. Maybe we don't need to have any changes in the constitution. The people were not informed and Australia has voted a resounding no to the mm. voice referendum. And I think that speaks volume about how people are now pushing back against this division that they have seen. It is not what? just in New Zealand. Across the world, hundred percent. My my wife actually watched the uh, voice re results flowing through the television last night more than the New Zealand election because it interested <laughs> her more. She found it more stimulating. But we interviewed Tony Seabrook again, and we'll play his segment later in the in the show. Uh, but he was alerting us to the knowledge that there's a hundred million dollars a day going into um, Aboriginal well-being in Australia. It's clearly not hitting the mark. Forty-two billion a year or thereabouts. And uh, and people that were promoting the voice were all flaky and fluffy about it. They couldn't identify how things it would, would work. Play, work, how it would work. Now, it's no real, no, and I don't want to draw the parallel that we've got the same issue uh, as big in New Zealand, but the SASMs, the sites and areas of significance to Maori, hanging over many properties in New Zealand, has similar undertones not as severe but similar undertones now we've got to be smart about this are we in the 21st century or not yeah that's what i say i you know there's a lot of tension that um that it could get worse under this latest coalition but if luxon and seem or smart they'll put a stake in the ground and saying we're not crossing that line we're not giving in to uh activists on the other side uh saying they want a property that everyone's property rights should be sacrosanct um and those new zealand people that have got freehold title that is sacrosanct and we're not going to have activists say you can't do this on your own property anymore yeah and uh, just a heads up here, I will be speaking in more detail about these uh, activist funding that Don has uh, referred to a couple of times now in this segment, because we uh, have a ministry for ethnic communities, 
And there's a whole lot of money being funneled through this, through grants to various NGOs and so on. And uh, as the in you know future episodes, John and I will talk more about that. But for today, we are going to be sticking to uh, something more topical. That's elections. And we have today the lineup we have. I am thrilled about it. Mm-hmm. We have Bryce McKenzie, Groundswell, who will be coming on to talk about his reactions after the weekend just gone and where he thinks. And, you know, because Groundswell led this whole push for change, drive mm-hmm. for change movement. So what are his feelings about the election results? Don has also assembled a panel of uh, ex-feds. Yeah, ex-presidents of Fed farmers, the old guard, including myself, Charlie Pedersen, Owen Jennings, and more recently, Katie Milne. So I've got, we've had our first panel. I think it went really well, Jasper. So let's hope our listeners um, learn a bit from it. It was it was encouraging to know that we can sort of run a panel discussion and hopefully get yeah. some good, good comment. And we'll also have uh, Tony Seabrook today and uh, Keen... Listeners might remember we had Tony on uh, July, three months ago, and that time he was talking about the Aboriginal heritage laws coming into Western Australia, which they, his organization, the Australian Graziers and Pastorals Association, was going to push back on. And we'll uh, have an update from him where mm. things are at. But uh, at this stage, John, do you want to have a look at uh, some of the feedbacks before we get into the nitty-gritty and our guest today yeah why not why not i need to get rid of my grumpiness um i need to lighten up a bit so sorry to be so <laughs> grumpy listeners i probably went a bit further than i should uh should go uh logically but yeah sometimes you've just got to let it go um anyway it was good to get feedback from mark holman he said that he was involved in uh forestry and timber and and building and merchant supplies and um he talks about how he's now close to the pension and struggling with all that experience and a master's degree to get suitable business after his business was crushed by the COVID fallout, economic fallout of COVID. And gee, there's, I don't know, you know, many people that have never come back. Yep. It's horrible, isn't it? Horrible. And it's like in this government, uh, past government, it was just, let's move on. Nothing to see here. It's horrible. We still have the talk of uh, 11,000 plus exemptions being granted to medical personnel or at least those many being made available who knows how many availed of those exemptions to not get the shots to carry on their jobs in the medical profession but yeah the skeletons there's a lot of them in the closet and they will come out i was surprised to hear that um, people are still doing rat um testing in, in their in their businesses and standing people down and you know COVID must be rampant again in this country is it goes on and on. It's up to us to make the stop. There's a few others uh, which have come through via text and uh, our number, if you're listening now, is 2057 or email us at inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. This one, without a name, it says, what a fantastic broadcast from the Greenwash team. Thank you for your dedication. Uh, thank you so much. It's very gratifying to hear that. We've had, uh, last week, we've had Dr. Ralph Alexander from California talking about how the unprecedented weather headlines that uh, seem to surround us are not quite what they seem. And more recent, and I think the episode before that, we had the Australian scientist, Dr. Peter Rudd, mm. come on and talk about the fast that is the conservation of the Great Barrier Reef and the hundreds of millions of dollars that that conservation 
efforts claim for not a lot to show for it but not a lot to show for it actually one thing i'd like to bring up in this and it's not to do with the feedback but it was i read morris newman's article in the spectator two weeks ago and he said um it's about about data going into climate models and this is a, a real bombshell for me um, as scientist Dr. Jennifer Marahos Hasse, among others, repeatedly demonstrates through peer-reviewed publications and elsewhere, Australia historical temperatures are dropped to cool the past without scientific justification. This has the effect of making the present appear much hotter and as a way of generating more global warming for the same weather. Well, how come how come that isn't splashed on every headline in the country? How dare they corrupt the data to the ma to making the past appear cooler uh, to get the effect that today is hotter? That's an absolute scandal. But anyway, sorry, that was within the feedback uh, uh, that I'm, I've cut in and um, taken you off your train. Integrity is pretty cheap these days. Comes pretty cheap. Mm. Great information down in Just Breathe. Can you please go over the list of companies you just read out and tell me what they have signed up for? I'm sorry, I was listening with one. Yeah, thank you, Misha. Misha, the show is up now, the replay for the last week. And at that point, I believe I was talking about Akina and sustainable finance and the companies that have signed up to, you know, only going along with the SDGs. So if you'll have a listen to the replay, they are all up there. Don, yep. there's yep. very small for you. Well, there's one other just before we go on. Um, I think uh, Roger Beatty, a lot of people made comments about listening to Roger Beatty was like a breath of fresh air. It was just great to hear his thoughts and um, ideas for the future. And as one guy says, uh, or one person said, it's a lovely trip down memory lane. Um, yep, it was. Um so where do we get to next, Jasper? Sorry. Nairi. Nairi Small. Nairi Small. Uh, okay, yeah. I've never missed uh, one of your weekly shows and you fa and your fascinating guests you present. Great to be so informed on the real agendas going on here and in the farming industry. So thank you, Jasper. We need you for Prime Minister and Don, Minister of Finance. <laughs> oh, heck. Uh, then we'd have a country to be proud of. And by the way, Don, uh, we too had our daily fluoride tablets back in the day. And being the, roughly the same age as you, my teeth are abysmal. <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway. Yeah. Oh, be well, very careful what you wish for, Nari. Thank you so much for your yeah. kind comments there. <laughs> Yeah, we ain't doing that. We ain't doing that, are we, Jespreet? I think you no. could be Prime Minister. I'm certainly not putting myself up for anything. No, I ain't retiring my gumboots just yet. We are perfectly <laughs> fine where we are. <laughs> uh, there's quite a few comments, and I'll just read a smattering of these because we do need to move on with the show, about mm. last week's article that was uh, pushing the fact that uh, fossil fuels and wood fires, both of those need to be phased out. They are so dangerous for us. The writer of that article was um, Mark Daldar, of course. And there are comments there. One from someone, again, no attribute of the name. Uh, Mark Daldar's parents are worth investigating. Close to Obama, mom's a chemical weapons expert. They were in New Zealand, I believe. Right. I, I do not know when they, when they were in New Zealand and when. But I do know that uh, Ivo Daldar, Mark Daldar's uh, father, is pretty well connected in the globalist circles. Father or grandfather? 
or well, both both anyway, actually i think i think that the name is quite familiar yep yeah yeah. And what do you, someone else is about? I think wood fires are a key tool for home garden, no ash, no soil balance, and so on. And uh, just breathe and on. My husband and I are totally appreciative of your wonderful show. It brings a wealth of information. My husband came from a generation, three generations of farmers in Vaitati, Dunedin. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Ian and Glennis. And Don, just like you, Phil enjoys the smell of coal. Yeah, yeah. I, I need to qualify something too at this point, man. I know we're, I'm digressing again. It, it, some people have given me a bit of a hard time that I'm anti-electric vehicles. I am absolutely not anti-electric vehicles. I'm anti the privilege that electric vehicles are getting to establish themselves in New Zealand. And I'm anti the privilege that electric vehicles are getting to use the roads. And I'm anti the privilege that even the National Party is talking about putting out charging stations all around New Zealand for them. On top of that, I am not anti the farmer in um, Cromwell getting his vineyard uh, up and running. Not a vineyard. I think he has cherry orchard, actually, and, and had using electricity for everything. Fantastic. All I've ever been against is anyone using any privilege money money that taken from outside their own borrowing, their own uh, investment profiling, um, and so using your or my money to do it. That's all I'm against. If electric vehicles are the way of the future, let it all happen uh, legitimately and above board, and then I'm happy. So look, we've had over time a bit of feedback that I've sort of been a bit tough on EVs and the like. That's all it is. It's about legislative privilege again, so I'm being consistent. Completely. And there's, there's, as you had said, Don, there's a lot of backslapping going on. There's mm. money changing hands. There is people like you and me subsidizing this. I also have my qualms about the level of environmental benefits they provide us. Because again, it comes down to the emissions and so oh. on. So that's that's where my issue lies. If you yeah. had done this on your own steam, yeah. you were not having to subsidize these. Yep. by the likes of the youths that people like me have to run because that's where I live and EV would not survive here a day. That's that's what my issue is. Yep, I, I agree. And of course, some of them are saying, but oh, that's all about to change the evolution. We'll, we'll fix all that. Well, maybe it will. Just let the market do it. Just let the market do it and we'll, we'll be happy. So yeah, look, I needed to I mean, get that in because it's been bubbling away in the background for a few weeks. It is absolutely, there's no two ways about it. You are subsidizing the cost of the infrastructure. You're subsidizing the very capital value of the vehicle. There is no road user charges yet. Mm. And uh, meanwhile, we have uh, hospitals going to the dogs. We have people struggling with basic needs. Fuel is going up every week. And uh, half of that is tax. Potholes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, look at the fuel taxes we pay and we can't have decent roads. It is an absolute scandal, the, the value proposition out of that tax uh, yeah. collection and the rate collection and the roads we have. I don't I don't get what where our priorities are anymore. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, right, yeah. after the break, we're going to Bryce, aren't we? Bryce, yeah. uh, Bryce McKenzie from Groundswell and... Uh, his wrap-up of his drive for change and his prognosis for the future under a change of government. So we'll see you after the break. 
Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. And listeners, welcome back to uh, Reality Check Radio, Greenwashed. A couple of days after the election, and here we go uh, with our first guest of the week, Bryce McKenzie from Groundswell. And of course, a few weeks ago, Bryce and Laurie and his team, they did the drive for change to Auckland from the deep south. They drove tractors uh, all the way. So, yo, Bryce uh, and Laurie and Mel and, and Code, they've got a lot of stamina. They ended up in Ellerslie Racecourse, uh, and yeah, I had a lot of MPs uh, address them, potentially MPs, some of them not so, they've, they've missed the bus. Uh, but, you know, the drive for change. Bryce, what do you reckon? Is the drive for change on, alive and well? <laughs> yes, it is. Good morning, good morning, Jasper. Good morning, Don. Uh, yes, it is alive and well. It, uh, I, when you do something like that, as, as you probably all know, it's really difficult to gauge whether you're having any effect on people. And, um, uh, you know, I've had several texts and messages from people saying, you know, what a great thing you've got your change. But I, I think New Zealand was ready for change anyway. Uh, what we tried to do was actually take that message to uh, central cities so that people in there could know how much the rural areas in New Zealand were really hurting. So it was designed exactly for that, to, to get a message into central cities. Well, yeah, so I, I'd suggest it was well done. I did watch you in their final hour driving through Auckland and you got a good uh, amount of uh, respect from the Auckland uh, residents. And uh, certainly the police gave you a great uh, uh, guide through the, over the over the over the bridge and back again. But anyway, around the world, we see um, farmer organisations lobbying uh, for change. And of course, the, there is plenty of lobbyists in the farming system. And I'm not noticing that many governments are taking much notice. That's the problem. Um, you've done good work. Others are doing good work. Uh, but we still see the blueprints for change that uh, these governments uh, still want to have. They certainly have a an idea about the environment and they think that um, legislated climate change is something they need to tackle. And I'm not quite sure how legislation fixes climate change, but it is right that the environment should be looked out for and, and more enhanced. What's your feeling? What's your feeling that the national or this new coalition can do that will put the brakes on the extreme edges of those legislative issues that were coming at you um, with the former government and the costs associated with them. What was it that this government come ahead can do? Well, look, the, I guess the big thing is at least you can talk to the people in this government. And I get, if you can talk, then you can explain your situation. I, I think if you could coin something of the last government, coin a phrase that would fit them, um, uh, very aptly it would be they didn't listen to the people and they've, they've suffered the consequences of that on the election on Saturday. So I would hope that this government won't make the same mistake. The, the people are becoming very aware of how much they're being um, uh, controlled and <clears throat> they're, not, they're not liking it. People just do not like it and it's becoming more and more obvious all the time. So what, what will National do that will be different? I mean, if you can, if they put into practice what they're talking to us about, they will make changes. They will take people with them. And 
we're not all against change. I mean, and we're not all against regulation, but they have to be reasonable regulations and they have to be changed that people can see is going to be better. So uh, they've assured us that they will um, take away a lot of the draconian uh, regulations that can't be adhered to, uh, the ones that aren't reasonable, and that they'll put something in place um, that's far less binding but still uh, going to improve the environment in particular. So... Uh, we've talked to them since we formed about uh, catchment groups, the part they play in that, uh, and you two both understand catchment groups only too well. So, um, and that, you know, if you get buy-in, buy and I, I mean, I feel like I've said this for years now, but if you can get people to buy into something and actually realise the benefit of it. It's done freely and it's done uh, probably with more interest and more vigour than if you regulate somebody to do something. And um, we've hammered that at the national government since day one, or the national government they are now, since day one, that, that you know farmers can take people on board and take them with them and still do a wonderful job without all these regulations. So, because uh, now you see, it, of course, um, regional councils are, are becoming the, the uh, whipping boys of the government, of the past government. And, uh, you know, we've got some really, really, uh, uh, um, what would you say? You can't understand no. uh, the regulations coming in in Otago right now. And it's mm. just, uh, it's hard to know where it would stop. Well, it, it's interesting, uh, you know, Australia's voice um really had some issues that they they wanted to bring out in front of the public and i would suggest that has divided australia more than um than helped uh but new zealand's planning rules uh that i think you're alluding to a little bit of this in your in your last sentence is seems to be that they're overbearing the rma is overbearing on the property right of individuals um the snas and this and the um sites and areas of significance to maori are going to tie this country up in knots if if the regulator doesn't back off now what's your confidence level because today the people were in the bureaucracy dealing with this on friday are still in their jobs yeah how do you how do you change that yeah, look, that's a that's a really good question, Don. I should be putting it back at you too. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm going to be looking at the briefing to, to the incoming ministers and governments very carefully, going through those with a fine tooth comb. But Bryce, I must say this because this is how I feel, and I wonder what your thoughts are, considering how awful I have no other word the last six years have been. This result, as far as I'm concerned. I would have thought it would it would have been a more emphatic win, a more of a sea of blue, considering and not that I'm a blues, you know, diehard supporter myself. What's the feeling that you got? Do you think they, the numbers that have come out, do they reflect that, that discontent? I think uh, party vote will probably show that, but uh, seats probably will not show it. And I guess that's the anomaly with MNP. Mm. Um, I think... It's very difficult. There's a lot of votes that will be redistributed, and that will certainly make a bit of a difference. I, I think you know it could be three or four seats. Um, so until it's all sort of finally worked out, it's going to be hard to say. But yes, at first look at it. I'd agree with you, Jasper. I, I thought it would have been more resounding 
in number of seats. It, it, is that, it shows you how tough um, politics are. There was Matt King, Democracy in New Zealand, went round the country for a good year, and he hardly registered in the vote. Um, but there you had New Zealand Loyal, who just started a few wet months ago, and, and you know, locally, uh, a good good friend of ours, Logan, did really well, did really, really well. Um, so it just shows you how fickle the electorate is uh, when you've got a guy like Matt King thought he had a, a rising presence around the country and then the wheels fell off in his own party with with some personalities and um he's persona non grata just gone so it's a cruel game but that's how it works so coming to the coalition again you know they want to lower ag emissions now you've been on 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 the tour talking about this sort of stuff as well they they talk about um they need to adopt, well, especially act the, uh, the the most recent science. But then they start talking about uh, being in sync with our trading uh, nations. Well, none of our trading nations are adopting um, the current science either. So what's it going to take to get uh, the ACT party and the influence over the National Party to get this methane, get integrity into the methane discussion that hasn't been in New Zealand in 25 years of talking about it? Yeah, that's good, Don. And I mean, we've talked to ACT about this the whole way through and uh, we couldn't even agree with their stand because we just believe that uh, methane isn't actually adding to warming in New Zealand. So we've always said that it's just a fallacy trying to do anything about it. But for all that, we've always said to ACT, well, you know, if, if you become part of a government and you've got to have talks with National, that should be your bottom line. Uh, you shouldn't compromise on that because you will take the farming community and a lot of New Zealand with you if you do do that. And I think that's something we all need to remember, that there's more and more people that are starting to understand the science behind what's happening. And as long as that continues, then you're not going to be looked at as being some climate denier if you talk about the effect some of these gases are having on our climate. So... I'm, I'm pretty confident that um, the, that's only going to get stronger. The voice of uh, reason is only going to get stronger because there is more science there all the time. And now we can have the discussion where once we couldn't even have a discussion on it. Yeah, well, that's yeah, that's that's right, Bryce. Uh, though it's been very difficult to get the narratives changed from the incumbents because they're talking. I assume the scientists of New Zealand that keep. Um, sort of holding back on uh, meeting with this new um, idea that we've you know we've got is because they've actually been telling a story for so long they don't want to um, let themselves down slowly yeah lose face that's <laughs> the old that's the old adage Don isn't it follow the money and yeah. I, I was listening to a podcast last week of a woman in America and she she was uh, head of science at a particular university um, when she looked at all the facts. She slowly started changing her view from um, from what was being trotted out for a number of years, and found out that all of a sudden her funding was getting less and less until the position she had to actually leave. And, and she said that's the way it operates. You speak out against it or even question it, and slowly you lose your funding to do things. Oh, we've had many um, senior scientists on this uh, program, and. All of them talk the same thing. Um, 
everybody's worried about their their pay uh, paycheck uh, and and their funding mechanism, and that's the problem I see in the in even New Zealand the grant scheme and Jasper Reed's unbundling more and more of this every week. The grant schemes in this country are all about vote capturing, in my opinion. They're not about get putting st- substance on the ground for for mum and dad, New Zealand and farming New Zealand. So the prescription for the future, Bryce. We know your drive for change was, uh, you know, overbearing regulations. Enough is enough. You know, what's next in terms of groundswells, modus operandi? What are you going to be doing um, in the days and weeks ahead? Look, uh, Don, we, we, when we set up, we were always go, uh, trying to set up a organisation uh, that would encourage our present uh, farming organisations to have a united voice. We've never, ever lost that vision, and, and uh, probably lately we've really increased that on um, uh, particularly federated farmers. Uh, we all know that they need to grow a voice. Uh, we think that they should be the voice of farmers and that anything that's done should be done um, outside of the public eye and that we should have our uh, eyes dotted, T's crossed before we ever start negotiating with government and we should have a one solid voice. So uh, we're not going to give up on that. We're going to continue to um, strive to bring that, that voice ag together. Well, that's that's fantastic because that's the key. Um, you can have your differences, but don't sell out your, organ, your, your um, industry in front of the public. Uh, that's been the problem. I noted that the last six years, the massive undermining that's been going on in fact, longer than that, 10 years, by different groups. Uh, and, of course, if you're the incumbent government, all you better say is, oh, they're a disparate lot. Uh, we'll just pick what we like out of that. And mm-hmm. I did see, um, and I'm not picking on him because he's um, he's trying to tread a fine line, but I did see the current president of Feds on TV1's Q&A last Sunday, Sunday week ago, and he, he, he made a comment that sounded like this. We know where you want to go, New Zealand, and we'll get there. It's just you're going too fast. Well, you know, I haven't a clue what he meant by that. Where does New Zealand want to go? Because it's not clear to me. Uh, go into more debt. If that's what we want, we, we can do that okay. What is it that, that going where New Zealand wants us to go means? What do you think it means, Bryce? Because to me, that was a hollow statement that uh, was made for an urban audience not really thinking about much. Yeah, look, where New Zealand wants to go has uh, got a different meaning for every different person, I guess. And uh, 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 look, I guess he was probably referring to emissions. Uh, is that what you sort of picked up? No, I figured it was more on environment. Uh, oh, and emissions and everything, everything. And, of course, that's the problem with feds. I've noted, and I've even had a senior policy advisor tell me that, oh, Don, we work in the mainstream now. Um we can't be the fly in the ointment to everything sort of thing. And and I'm sorry, I think there has to be a ginger group that holds up the end for farmers. Um, so look, you and, and and Fed Farmers, Groundswell and Fed Farmers have got a big mission to do to, to get this voice um, corralled into, uh, into something that really does represent farming. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I think the big thing is um, uh, with where we're where, – uh, hopefully we're going in the future, it comes back to just the same old thing that if, if, if 
if the market determines it, we're certainly going to go there and we're certainly going to go there very, very quickly. And that's that's the way people operate. And when we went to uh, the Labor government and spoke to them, that, that was one of the main things we wanted to try and get across to them. Why would you actually um, regulate for something when the market, if it wants, it's going to determine it very jolly quickly? And I don't mm-hmm. see that that's ever changed and I don't think it will change. I I think Bryce at this point you know we, we are all talking about uh, the lobby bodies and funded levy funded or not there is something to be said about our co-ops here we can we talk about ourselves but if you look last year the 200 300 million dollars spread over the next 4 years to set up a new center you know for climate action reducing ag emissions all our producers from ansco to fonterra to silver fern farms are all partnering there it almost seems like uh, the co-ops are the ones that are out of control yeah they yeah, look Jasper that that is so true and i mean we've tried uh, writing letters to them asking them where they stand they they're not very good at actually responding uh, to those sort of things and yes they are and a lot of times they front it and there's a lot of people getting very very upset with them um mm. and i think you know i i think that uh, some of them are going to find their agms are going to be a little bit tenuous going forward uh, because they are pushing it rather than actually uh, waiting for the market to de- determine so in other words they're actually trying to make the markets yep okay. uh, yep and i saw the latest you know email out from fontera about what's going on so they have now they're talking of three positions of appointed councillors diversity based so that wanting people who identify as a non new zealander and as a non european to fill the diversity gaps you know pardon my ignorance but i always thought the co-ops job the fonterra's job was to work for the prosperity of everyone all dairy farmers but here we are supposedly without these uh, special interest group quotas we can't get anywhere fonterra has also partnered with the agri net zero again committing tens of millions over the next few years to push these down there is there's a whole gravy train going on here right now and i look at it and i see this going on repeatedly the noise they have in the media versus you know say someone like the good people behind the methane science accord they barely get any traction and i i really think at many at this stage many of our co-ops are you know corporates masquerading as co-ops they they really need to be bought back into line and fast yeah you're quite right and i, I guess that's a call to to everybody in agriculture to uh if you don't like what's going on there to actually put yourself up and do something about it because uh there needs to be changes on some of those boards uh to actually bring change within them so uh yeah we just encourage more and more people to stand up do something about it Yeah I mean this is a post election um discussion uh, yeah one thing that does bug me um is how New Zealanders seem to constantly um talk about New Zealand incorporated and that's the straitjacket for everybody I mean uh if you're in those co-ops you just talked about um New Zealand branding isn't as important as uh, as as you think in fact well it's important but it's actually it's also if you put it in the same box everything in the same box you get all the uh authorities able to control every company's output the same way and it's it's very debilitating but if you're a marketing 
person in each of our co-ops, you'd say, let's jump all these hurdles. It's going to make my life a whole lot easier. Um, uh, I'm not sure the value proposition for the farming. But anyway, look, we've digressed way off um, the subject of the election. Um, you know, there's, I haven't uh, seen the makeup of the parliaments, you know, how the lists come into the parliament yet. And, you know, there's some renegade MPs, and if they're still back and even on the left of centre, um, I'd be disappointed uh, that they have survived because some of them were so divisive. Um, I am surprised, though, to see um, three electorates, by the look of it, get a green tick uh, candidate. Yeah, the green candidate is, is now the electorate um, candidate. You'd have to say those, those electorates, they are all in central cities pretty much, big cities. They obviously have no feeling for the economic activity of the country, none at all. Yeah, quite right, Don. And, uh, you know, that is quite noticeable. And uh, uh, I was talking to somebody a couple of three days ago and they were talking about their children were going to vote uh, green because they imagined that they were looking after the planet. What they don't realise is, I mean, it's so socialist, it's communist really, and uh, it's the, the green part of it, uh, looking after the planet, is really just an absolute farce now. Well, compared to the old days of uh, Rod Donald and co, uh, you know, 20 years ago, it is a farce. And uh, it's disappointing that people can't see, um, as you call it, it's more than socialism. It's uh, communism right there in our biggest cities. What the heck is that about? And so they 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 tell us uh, uh, they berate farming, uh, put farmers down, the producers of, of uh, export earnings for the country. Um, and... And plenty of other people do that too, by the way. I'm not just saying farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, and they denigrate us. At the same time, they've got their mouths full living in um, leafy urban suburbs. What the heck's that about? Yeah, maybe some people are going to have to um, not have enough food before there's a realisation of uh, what part farmers play in their lives, Don. Uh, <laughs> people have got uh, a long way removed from where the food comes from, unfortunately. They have, that disconnection's big. Well, you know, we call this a uh, reality check radio uh, greenwashed. Uh, the reality check maybe is coming for some of those people. So um, let's hope so. Look, uh, Bryce, I think we'll we'll wrap this Um you know, you've done great work in the last few years holding uh, New Zealand uh, farming up in, in highlights uh, in front of the public. So all I'd say to you, if we uh, we, we love having you on um, RCR Greenwashed, but um, all power to you and uh, may you keep the pressure on because, boy, do we need that to happen as a sector. So thanks to you, Laurie, Mel and your team, and um, we'll, we'll keep in touch. Thanks for tuning in to RCR reality check radio if you like what you're listening to or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to then get in touch with us now you can text us with your message to 2057 that's 2057 or if you'd rather email us you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio we would love to hear from you so get in touch with us now welcome back to reality check radio and greenwashed and what is a first for the Screenwashed show? We've got a panel uh, ready for you today. So we're having an election post-match analysis. And who do we have on our panel? Well, we have 
a whole bunch of former Fed farmers, presidents, really. That's what they were called, and including me. So there's four of us on this show today, including Jasper Eat as well, of course. So remember to give your feedback after the show um, to realitycheck.radio or at 2057 via text. So uh, who do we have on our show today? Well, we have Owen Jennings, who was the president of Fed Farmers from 1990 to 1993. He was farming on the West Coast in those days in Karamea, and it's a lovely temperate climate there, I'm sure. He was also an ACT MP from 1996 to 2002, and uh, he still kept his hand in uh, being a farmer advocate all these years and is now chairman or spokesman, I think chairman, of the Methane Science Accord. So welcome, Owen. We have Charlie Pettis. Charlie Pedersen, who was president of uh, Fed Farmers 2005-2008, was the dairy rep for years on Feds, and uh, now is um, continuing his role as, as investments in dairying and um, chicken meat raising and property development in and around Foxton. So welcome, Charlie. G'day, everybody. And of course, last but not least is Katie Milne, who's also from the West Coast, Chairman of Feds, President of Feds from 2017 to 2020, also just retired VP of the World Farmers Organization. So great to have you all on and um, welcome, Katie. Good morning. Good to be here. Yeah. And of course, Saturday night, there was an election of Andrew Hoggard, uh, another president of Fed Farmers into Parliament. So we should wish him all the best. He's got a, a tough job to do there. And of course, we think of Mark Cameron, who's also with him, who's been a very good advocate for farming the last three years. So, yeah, we've got a couple of colleagues and mates that are in the parliament today. But what's your prognosis of what's happened so far, Katie? I just wanted to add that, of course, Miles Anderson as well, uh, who ah. was on the Fed's board, um, has has come through and been elected as well in the Waitaki area. So just throw that one in there. Yeah, no, good work, because Feds does have a proud history of having office holders getting into prime roles in Parliament. But, yeah, things, the deck chairs have been cleaned out, changed. What's uh, what's your feeling of Saturday night's uh, uh, results, and what do you think's happening Monday morning as we record this? What's it like? Well, it's uh, it's very interesting, isn't it? It's, it's good to see that, um, if you like, in a way, rural New Zealand got its voice back, and hopefully we've had a we've had a swing back to putting things into uh, into the hands of people who are, should be more uh, small to medium business focused, and be able to set up the platforms we need to to go forward. And of course, those um, policy platforms that that uh, uh, Act and National and, and others spoke about this time, and and New Zealand First was about the provinces a lot and what it needs to go forward uh, and and cutting out a lot of the red tape that was holding us back and pushing us under, quite frankly. And it couldn't have been timed better in the fact that, you know, we saw the report last week, last week from Beef and Lamb about a 30% drop expected, you know, for sheep and beef and, and all those um, issues economically that are coming at us. So this should hopefully turn a bit of confidence back for us uh, into the into the regions to, to help, you know, give people that. But, um, yeah, that... There is some hope in the future, and some of the the policies that were too tough to implement at the pace they were being pushed will be rolled or fixed so that they can be ones that work for us. So how quick do you think that that could happen? Because effectively um, today, the deck chairs might have been changed a little bit, but the bureaucracy in central and local government is still there. They'll certainly be having morning tea with a whole lot different perspective, I accept. 
but the regulations are still there today. They haven't been stopped. Uh, for instance, fresh water plans, uh, methane taxing, all that stuff is still on the agenda. So how yeah, and do that you think is always- that the brakes can be put on? Well, that is always the, the $64 million question, isn't it, is how fast can the modifi- modifications needed be implemented? And I know that, um, you know, some of the first 100-day stuff that were promised was to to uh, fix some of that. Um, mm. So hopefully, and I mean, for my own thinking on it for a long time now and having seen, been through some of these things that were rolling through in my time, the freshwater policy stuff, there was one draft that was very livable uh, 2019 draft of that um, that was you know came back to if getting rid of all the complications of 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 uh, slope and and fencing etc and uh, it moved it more to if you were intense versus extensive so the old 14 stock units per hectare sort of thing uh, you could have a management plan around what you do around waterways versus have to have the the staunchness so those little things like that that that's that still wasn't locked in place you know um, still lots of discussion around they had the slope wrong so many things wrong with that policy that'd be a quick switch they could do that would help farmers immensely so so just saying that and i'll go to you charlie uh what's your your view on that i mean i've got a view that we've got a bad habit of dignifying an idea that's been thought up in the halls of power somewhere or by our own co-ops um uh, presenting a case that you need to do this to meet the international marketplace um so so, you know, policy that's sitting there, uh, why would we want to even dignify it more today? Why wouldn't we want to just say, no, nah, we're not going to have that anymore? Is there a big risk in saying no? Because, I, you know, we were trying to get Wayne Langford onto this show as well, the incumbent president of Feds, and he's sort of saying, uh, we need to be, uh, we're going to get there. It's just a matter of give us time. What is it that we're trying to get to? And why wouldn't we just put the brakes on everything? Thanks for that, um, kind of uh, giving me that question. Um, I suspect you asked me that question because you already know my um, feelings on this. So um, starting off with uh, Saturday's election, um, it's born born about some truisms that we've come to know in the way that our uh, MMP system works. Uh, So it's still a reasonably close-run thing, uh, even though there was a massive swing from red to blue, uh, it's still reasonably um, tied up, um, closely tied up when you when you look at left versus right. If we look at the way that farmers are represented, I think we've made some <clears throat> mistakes that we've wandered into over the years where we've got multiple groups um, representing, purporting to represent farmers. And so you have the, um, the organisations like... Um, uh, uh, Fonterra, for instance, I'll use that as an example, um, and other processes who have no business, in my opinion, purporting to represent farmers at all. And then we have the farmer levy bodies um, who also purport to represent farmers, and I think they they need to be, my own opinion is that way outside their natural um, mandate. Um, the levy is for um in my opinion, uh, more for uh, research and development type activity, maybe trade stuff. But as far as representing farmers inside the farm gate and what they do on their farms, I think they should be um, they should be reined in on that. And but we've got that going on at the moment. And then we've got the farmer um, levy, uh, sorry, um, um, uh, groups, 
create a farmer's groundswell, whatever you want to, um, that politically represent farmers um, behind the farm gate. Um, well, that was how I understand it was really all supposed to work. So, in my opinion, so that, I think that that's that muddies the landscape um, a lot and means that we've got different voices. We've got a bunch of people who have their eye on the future, and all of those organisations they don't want to they don't want to ever stand up for anything because they're thinking about where their next little earner is coming from, and so um, they uh, they just play the kind of um, moderate middle man game and don't put their heads up too far and um, uh, and that's that's really most common the the the, the the farmer representatives are few and far between who pop in to do a job um, as asked by their farmer so, and then uh, pop out again. So I, I don't think yeah. – my, my opinion is after this election that happened on Saturday, uh, nothing much has changed, um, and I just need to get this in. You know, I, I have heard the National Party referred to as Labour light, and I honestly believe that's what they are, and um, the – right-wing party that might have had a bit of pressure on them isn't really big enough in that um, government makeup uh, to to uh, change many of the things that farmers fundamentally need to have changed so that we can operate in a, a more um, profitable way. Right. Now, leading on from that, uh, that one, Charlie, I think I'll address this one to you, Owen. I am myself surprised at the way the dice have fallen. One would have expected that after six years of what I can as best describe as shambles, the drubbing would have been, you know, far greater and the blues should have been much stronger. What do you think of the numbers, the way they've played out? Well, I think one of the uh, groups that um, lost badly last night was the mainstream media, you know, having waged a massive war against Luxon personally, against National Party and against ACT. Uh, they got a kick in the slats last night, really good and proper. I mean, if you'd watched TV1 or TV3 last night, you'd have seen that about 80% of the time was focused on uh, the Maori Party and the Greens and, and ACT and National got about 20% of the coverage. You would have thought it was the Maori Party winning by country miles. So I guess the first point is that, um, you know, agriculture, but but progressive New Zealand, if you like, or well, that's a dirty word nowadays, but uh, uh, industry, uh, the part of the economy that we need to flourish, uh, has suffered badly. You know, I didn't hear the word productivity last night anywhere. I didn't hear agriculture. I didn't hear tourism. I didn't hear any of those things. And one of the things that concerns me is over the last, three years particularly, but over the last six years, the the um, administration, the bureaucracy in New Zealand has had a heyday. Uh, weak leadership, weak ministers, incompetent people who had no idea what they were doing except putting out press releases and making vague promises. Uh, you know, it it's going to take a huge turnaround. And, and my, my question, uh, you know, is... Do we have the incoming ministers who've got the fortitude, the ability, the strength to actually push back on a bureaucracy, um, departmental bureaucracy that's been in control over the last six years? That, 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 
I think that's a a, a major question. Yeah. Uh, and and in a in a in a when you have to stitch together a coalition government and maybe it's going to be three, not two, who knows? Uh, that gets that much harder. So in terms of what farming needs in, in the next little while, I think the big issue is will farming get up and take the initiative on day one? I'm sorry Wayne's not here because I'd like to have said to him, instead of going out and dagging lambs or whatever he's doing today, he should have been up on his soapbox and going for it, hammer and tongs because unless farming takes the initiative, unless we move concertedly uh, together, um, pointedly, uh, with a lot of strength and a lot of focus, we'll, we'll get left behind again. We're a minority. We've got to fight and fight oh, hard no. to make yeah. progress. Yeah, and on that basis, I, I actually think uh, as as the numbers rolled in on Saturday night and le- even today, uh, I, it is really tenuous. There's not enough strength there. One thing I've not understood, Owen, and you've, you understand the MMP far better than I ever will, um, I'm I'm not saying I'm disinterested, but I, if you've got a convoluted system, it makes it um, that's hard to follow. Then it's going to be hard to follow for everybody, and that's why MMP perhaps hasn't delivered for a for our sector. I don't know, um, but why did the National Party put such an intense list out with 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 participants in it, or, you know, candidates in it that were shoe ins? Why did they put them up in their um? Uh, in the high echelons, why did they did they go after the two tick vote? And they they've effectively because what what I don't get is at the moment they've got five MPs off their list, but they had thirty eight percent of the party vote. Makes I, no I sense hear to that me. Forty percent of New Zealanders who don't understand MMP. I think most of those forty percent are in the top echelons of some of our political parties. Um, <laughs> I think it's probably more like more like sixty or eighty percent who don't understand it. I think the other thing that's missing in the discussion last night and this morning is the wasted vote. Um, I haven't seen the final numbers from the smaller parties, but that 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 vote gets divided up between the winning uh, parties. So I suspect that that's going to help um, National Act get up a bit more, despite the fact that they were gradually losing ground late last night. Mm-hmm. So what's your thoughts about, um, just onto that, I know, Charlie, you've got a view on this, uh, the Port Waikato by-election ahead. What, what's the significance of that now? Now, I know it's it's sad that the um, ACT candidate there passed away and he was well-known. So what do you think that, will National and ACT really push hard under this by-election to, to bolster their numbers and maybe um, increase their their votes? Um in a in a by election, will they will they really work hard there now? What's your feeling, Charlie? Um, well, since you introduced um, the idea of um, Port Waikato, I'd have have to say that um, you know Neil Christensen was a poultry vet, and um, uh, we produce about one hundred and fifty tons of poultry meat a week on our operation. It's about a third of our business these days, and Neil was the best poultry vet in Australasia so I miss him on a lot of levels but mm. um, he uh, but but as far as the way I see it that it's got the, it's going to make that Port Waikato election very very interesting because um, it's going to happen in a uh, two or three weeks time um, it's possibly going to uh, you know Owen's just um, 
added a really valid um, idea, and that is that that uh, overhang wasted vote gets I don't I know the wrong term that wasted vote gets redistributed and national and and act will get the uh, lion's share of that. Uh, so that um, probably possibly brings in um, a, a new uh, MP, uh, but the or two, uh, and plus the election. Um, looking at the what what Port Waikato's done in the past, I think there's very little chance that that vote is going to go black or red or green. So that's another potential um, increase in the right wing block, if you like. So I think that um, the election result may be more secure. Um, than some of us who thought the, the result was okay, feared. Um, so that's that's the way mm. I see it. Be interested yep. to see how that. I've, I've been wrong before. It has happened occasionally. So um, I'm sure it's possible. <laughs> we're, we're all perfect, aren't we? The whole lot of us. We've all got <laughs> we've all got history and perfection, and getting things right. Um, yeah. Hey, um, so Katie, down on the coast, uh, yeah, I shouldn't say that, over on the coast, I should say, perhaps, um, what's the what's the feeling? Um, Minister O'Connor, uh, former Minister O'Connor, will be feeling a bit bruised and battered today, but, um, you know, what 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 will be the, uh, you know, clearly he's been um, given a bit of a smacking by by you, uh, your, your voters over there. What do you think he did wrong? Um, well, what did he do wrong or who, what did the others do right? And it's interesting because we had a young independent standing as well and and he was um, very active, very good young fella. He's well known on the coast. Um, but I guess, you know, it's it's really hard to flick it to an independent. There hasn't been one in a long time. But he uh, told everyone, he just kept saying, you know, I will be a stand-up person for the coast, as, as you expect. But the main thing that he pushed through and drove on was the fact that Damien's number 10, Maureen's number 26. They're in anyway, so come and vote for me and we'll get another person pushing our barrow and solely our barrow mm. um, on the coast. And even though, you know, if you know the politics, how it works, he, he wouldn't, he'd only be on every six weeks or whatever, the question and question time. But uh, there would have been, um, you know, a, a lot of use there. And, of course, probably that uh, looks like it took Damien's vote because he was very clear about, um, not aligning himself to any party, so that was that was good because he he knew he didn't want to piss off anyone on any, any colour. He wanted to just take people, you know, and and have a good crack. So I think that was um, a big part of it. But then of course, um, we're the the area that's got a lot of um, primary industry from the mining, the fishing, and the farming, obviously, and we've suffered under policies from Labor. We're told they're good for us, mm-hmm. but uh, you know the the um, no more mining on conservation land, all those things. We're sitting on a stewardship land review that's taking forever and, and sort of going off track at times. Um, so, it, you know, there's a lot of discord in, um, being felt here for uh, probably if, if the same had happened, whoever was in power, the same policies come through, there'd be, there'd be a backlash either way. But we've really felt uh, on the coast, you know, not speaking for, for from myself necessarily, but as you say, what's the feeling out there? It's been a bit of a sense of betrayal. So, you know, the chickens have come home and roosted. I, I wonder, Katie, if you would have, uh, what would you think about the statement from Damien last week in the Farmers Weekly, where he says that I've reminded leave, uh, leaders of the agri uh, bodies that they need to toughen up for all the criticism they are <laughs> facing. And he's also said the world is changing rapidly. Our competitors are catching up. There's this growing pressure on livestock farming. We will need to have to move very 
very quickly to ensure we provide a sustainable future. So he's telling farming yeah. uh, bodies to toughen up because he says, you know, I have faced a lot of flack and I've not wilted under the pressure. I thought it's rather rich coming from the gentleman, but your views, please. It's well, really... Yeah, sorry, Katie, you go. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, that that having been on the World Farming Organization, the, the term I served there, which is nearly was about six years, five six years, um, livestock uh, farming generally is under attack, under attack all over the world. So you know, yep. it needs all the support it can get. And yeah, the the our competitors are trying to get to where we are today. You know, I remember having a conversation with Eugenie Sage a few years ago, and she said Scotland has, has uh, Ireland it was actually was has wanting to reduce their their greenhouse gases from farming, you know, by they've set this target, uh, reduce it by 13% by 2025, I think, at that stage. And I said, well, if they can, that gets into where we are today. And going, this is going back three or four years. So I think that gap of how much ahead of everyone is we are gets forgotten sometimes and, and the hype gets caught up in what the police say. And um, they miss the point that we're continuing to carry on and it's efficiency and productivity that gets us there not um, cutting our throat and, and reducing our numbers. That just shifts it offshore, as we know, with emissions. But, yeah, it's uh, always an interesting conversation, that one, when they, they say we've got to keep ahead of the competitors. We know well, we, we have are. to. We're always trying. Being a, being a Minister of Labour, uh, a Minister of Agriculture and Labour is a hospital pass anyway, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of like you're pushing water uphill with a rake. Um uh, and I think one of the things that, you know, in criticising uh, farming leaders, um, uh, he, he was kind of trying to shift the, the the blame, if you like, across from his own um, government and leadership to to the industry. Uh, one of the things I think that's important, and, and as past presidents, I'm sure we would have all encountered this and, and thought about it is that New Zealand's position as a as a, uh, a very efficient both environmentally and economically um, farming organization is is pretty much different to most other places in the world most most farming most agriculture heavily subsidized and and kind of is maintained by the government as a sort of a uh, a, a pet, if you like, a, you know, on a bit of a chain. Um, you know, we have to go out and fight in the world. 85% of what we produce goes into the international market. Nobody else is in that in that category. Uh, and, and that's the basis that I think we've got to fight going forward, not just on the emissions issue, but, uh, but a number of issues. We've got to understand that uh, we we we've got a different battle. We're 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 subtly different to the rest of the world, uh, and uh, without without trying to um, I don't know soft soap, but we have to stand up for the fact that we are uh, an agricultural nation reliant on agriculture for our economy. Um, we send what forty million people their lunch basket every day. Um, and we have to demarcate ourselves sensibly and justifiably uh, in in the world scene, and I don't think we've done that as smartly as we might have. 
Well, oh, and that's well well spoken. Um, I used to talk about we have the gold standard of of trade, uh, subsidy free farming, and you know that seemed to go, you know, that was even a considered um, almost old news. Um, don't let's not worry about that anymore. And to me, until we get back to understanding that, uh, we should stop this. Uh, it, if people understood that, I think the demonization of farming the way it's been uh, in the last ten years would uh, would stop. Katie, you have an, uh, you want to add a bit? Yeah, just on that, um, you know, being over at a um, the general assembly of all the farmers, and we do farm tours, and, and one of them was a meat farm, meat chickens actually, Charlie, and uh, they just built a beautiful new barn. They were going organic. If they'd had commercial chickens, it would have been thirty thousand in there. It was only eight thousand uh, because it was organic. And uh, someone piped up and said, so how big was your grant? They said 40%. This is not a loan. This was a grant to build the new system and the new shed and everything. And you're right. Um, that does get forgotten how big of an impact that is. And I think the other point that, that's sort of floating around in here is that, you know, in New Zealand strive to be better at all these things and, and get these stories out there, we need that to be done at, at, the, at the company level, those guys who are out there marketing. That's their job. Don't put it into regulation and make it a bottom line because then we give it to the market for nothing. And I see that all the time and it has frustrated me for a long time that um, that bar, yeah, you've got to have standards, but that seems to be forgotten that we take away that option to bring in true premium. We're told it'll bring a premium, but if you give it away, if you freeze the market, you don't actually get it in a dollar value in the farmer's pocket. And all those dollars are new dollars to New Zealand. They're not borrowed and they're not printed. And Charlie, you'd have a you'd have a bit of a, a comment about that, I'm sure, because I know you're building more chicken sheds at the moment, raising barns at the moment, and uh, you the last thing you would ever want would be a dollar from anybody else other than your own, and you want to have control. Is that it? Have I got you right? Yeah, yes, you have got me right, and that's uh, one of the things that I've um, relished about getting involved in the, um, with free range meat chicken farmers. Um, I've relished about getting involved in that industry, and that is. We don't have anybody representing us but us ourselves. And an example of that at the moment is that uh, we had a disease, you know, it's, 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 it's the fire blight story only about chicken um, where the Australians sent us a disease and then um, said that we should, they shouldn't have to receive any chickens from us because we now had a notifiable disease in New Zealand. It was in a quarantine facility in the South Island. <coughs> um, but anyway, um, so because of a whole bunch of stuff around that, um, event uh, MPI have decided that the free range, oh sorry, the um, meat chicken farmers of New Zealand need to um, be corralled into an MPI system. So they've contacted us directly and said, "You need to fill in all these forms and you need to send us a fee and blah blah blah." And um, many of us are just saying, "No thanks, we're fine." Now, if we had, you know, um, Federated Farmers or, or you know, um, Meat Chickens um, Levy Organisation of New Zealand representing us, MPI would corral those organisations into a room in Wellington somewhere and uh, um, that other second organisation, whatever represented organisation it is, would uh, capitulate and um, we'd be told as farmers, oh, everyone's doing it, you have to do it. But yeah. at the moment, well, we're separated out. MPI have to actually go through the pain of coming and trying, convincing each one of us. And actually, I find that really refreshing. I don't want any subsidy or any representation from anybody. I'll do it myself. And um, and we'll merrily keep producing our 150-odd tonnes of chicken meat a week and uh, sending it to the processor um, who pays me every Friday. And, um, you know, um, we 
we uh, we it's a nice tidy business without anybody else poking their nose in it at all. I absolutely love it. So that's oh. that. That's my analogy as to how things can be different. Um, mm. um, and you know, I was thinking about the free trade agreements um, that were that have been done. Uh, while I was involved and from a federated farmer's point of view and since and before too probably and really none of them have been tremendous breakthroughs for money ending up, more money ending up in farmers' pockets um, at all. Um, Usually we find there's a fish hook or two in there that um, we didn't really know about and Mm. uh, the FTA with with Britain uh, is, um, you know, um, the the uh, folks from Fonterra are still being tight-lipped about what's actually in there and what we don't know about, but, you know, I'm not going to say. But, you know, there is some um, – I'm aware of some stuff that's yet to bite uh, New Zealand dairy farming because of that FTA that no one's talking about at the moment. Uh, and, you know, really, did it do us any – did we really benefit? Is that really such a big market for us anymore? Uh, maybe as farmers – uh, and and as mark as organ, an organisation's marketing product out of New Zealand, uh, go and make our own way in the world and try and keep the government out of it might be a good idea, um, rather yeah. than getting dragged in by the bureaucrats who really right. don't don't yeah. give a f- arm about it. really yeah. Completely That's a really up. interesting one, if I can pop in for a second, yeah, because, sure. um, you know, everyone's on about a, a, a free trade agreement with India at the moment, and um, I was, I'm involved with Aspen New Zealand, and we ran a, a, a seminar a while ago, a webinar, and we had, you know, people, um, ambassadors from India and so on here as well, on there, and discussing all that, and, um, and you know, it was clear that they're not super fussed on free trade agreements. They like B2B and they're happy. They're, their door is open to do business with us at that at that level. So actually, you know, in some contexts, if people can get in there and, and thrive and find their own niche, that's great. Uh, do you need all that bogged down stuff? Because sometimes it limits you, doesn't it? Unless yeah. it doesn't let you fire ahead and find these things, you actually are constrained so much. So it's an interesting dynamic of way the world might go on some of these things. And as we saw with the uh, EU trade agreement, they throw in some real curveballs that we don't even know how they'll hurt us, like the climate change being part of that one was, was pretty horrendous, yep. seeing about yeah. forest degradation and the new policies they put out around that. That's uh, an interesting space that no one's got any idea how they'll whack us if they choose. So I see no, um, Owen nodding. Have you got anything to add there, no, Owen? Oh, I just think it, it reinforces the point that was made before that you know, we, we stand out, we're different. Um, even the terminology in some of these agreements, um, when you analyse it, their style of farming and farming arrangements are so different to ours uh, yeah. that often we get, you know, we get sidelined because the language is, is not suitable for our situation. Yeah, and if, if I could put my oar in here, I, I get, uh, we've had lots of... Um guests on now on this show from um, overseas Ireland and the Netherlands, Australia, but especially the European ones, um, they're all pretty good at um, telling us their their woes, which is great, you know, because they've got same same woes as us, same issues as us. But the sad thing is they, um, they're being compensated for their uh, acceptance of rules and regulations, and they would still, even the Dutch farmers are going to be bought out with compensation, not full compensation, but bought out. They don't get it that once you prostitute yourself to the taxpayer dollar, 
You're yep. captured, captured forever. Um, New Zealand farmers are clean as a whistle, or we have been, although I do see some protectionist stuff happening again in terms of plantings and fencings and, and things like that. But we are clean. So it's not like we have to give in to um, what's happening over there. Um, and, and I imagine Fonterra's scope three emissions will be the biggie uh, coming down the pike for the farmers of this country to to bat off. So, yeah, we're, we're so different, and yet we can't get any politician in New Zealand to stand up for this. And, you know, I'm not confident the next crop will either of politicians. Um, so that's why, as you said at the introduction to the show, Owen, um, effectively, you were saying the foot's going to have to be on their throat tomorrow, today. Yeah. 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 If, unless we move quickly, decisively, and I pick up Charlie's point about the disparate nature, uh, you know, and I've been, I could be accused of helping to start a, yet another organisation, if you will. Um, but, yeah, if we don't move quickly and decisively, know exactly what we want, what we what outcomes we want, um, we'll get sidelined. Look, there's health, there's education, there's welfare, there's a thousand things that this incoming government have got to focus on um, and, and we'll get left behind. Yeah, and as, you know, I think it was Charlie who said, you know, the, the politicians, they, they change, but the bureaucrats, the numbers, the mushrooming of it. I was listening to Vicky Robertson's, her uh, farewell speech when she left the Ministry for Environment as a CEO. So she said she's proud of the fact that when she joined was it six or was it an eight-year tenure? I, I could be wrong there. It's gone up from 320 staff to over 1,200, but they have retained their culture. To me, that's alarm bells. That's you've nearly quadrupled your workforce and all these do-gooders tinkering around, messing around, justifying their existence. And I, I, I sound cynical, but I am. I think often more than the ministers, it's the bureaucrats behind them that wield the power. Well, it's interesting. It's not just, and she, it's not and she, just, it's mm -hmm. not she, just the numbers, it's mm -hmm. the quality. Um, yeah. You know, under Helen Clark, we drove out all the top echelon in a number of our government departments. We put number crunches in, we put army, um, you know, retirees in to run uh, some of our government departments. Uh, uh, it's not just numbers, it's the quality of those people. I look back to and this is a bit of history, but, you know, guys like Malcolm Cameron, who knew agriculture inside out, full of integrity um, and, and you know, looked after the industry but did the right thing as a as a government servant. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's just a huge lot of rebuilding required, a lot of leadership, but most of all, a lot of guts, and that's what I can't see anywhere. I can't see the leaders who will drive home that change at the pace that we need to turn the show around. Well, look, let's hope it's happening right now at the morning tea table. I mean, we're just talking about Vicky Robinson, who was the Director General of MFE. She increased her staff from 320 to 1,200 or 1,500 or whatever it was, Jasper. But she's now CEO of the Productivity <laughs> Commission. For goodness sake, she, she's, she's got a, a pretty good cushy number. She's done it really good. She can increase uh, increase numbers and productivity goes where? I uh, don't know, but um, we've got a problem and uh, it is about the quality of the government spend. And you know, this significant thing in this election for me, uh, aside from a swing to the right, uh, centre, 
I hardly say it's the right, it's the centre, um, is that the um, main centres of New Zealand, Auckland Central, Wellington Central, and uh, one of the suburbs of Wellington, went to the Green Party. Those people have no respect for the earnings of any farmer or industry in this country. If they can vote for the economic vandalism that those people want to have put upon us, that says a significant chunk of those central uh, city elites need a big wake-up call. And I don't know about you, but I find that the most disturbing part of Saturday night's election. How do, well, how do, you, how do the rest of you see it? Well, Donald Trump, um, and I know he's a, a, a um, explosive figure to introduce into any discussion, but <laughs> he, that phrase, draining the swamp, and I, I don't know what this, the, the term is we should use here, but there are too many people uh, in unproductive roles working within um, taxpayer-funded bureaucracy that are really holding the country back. And, you know, my, my live example of that is we're increasing our capacity on our, um, on our broiler farm uh, by about 40% at the moment. And uh, the build is taking three months and, um, uh, you know, just three sheds, 147 metres by 16. And um, that's taking three months and the to get all the consents in place, and I needed five, as it turned out, um, took me, including um, having to explain what sort of effect my um, farming operation, which was an existing farming operation, but its expansion would have on Tuturi Treaty of Waitangi. Just absolute nonsense. Um, uh, something that the John Key-led government did nothing about in nine years of power, by the way. Um, so, uh, but, um, so... It took over 12 months to get the consents in place. It's going to take three months, to, three months to do the build. Now, that's just complete nonsense. That is holding New Zealand back. It increased my costs um, by, by about 15% over that period because the quoted costs um, at the start of the project had gone up. So, and that, I'm, I'm just using my own example because that is happening all over the country every day right at having an influence on the productive sector, the non-productive sector, I'll call them, are having that drag down effect on the productive sector. And those silly people actually think they're contributing something and they just get in the way. And I don't know how we turn that tie back. It is absolutely abysmal to try and do anything at any scale in this country anymore. God help us is what I say. I, I think one of the things we should talk about and, and make a lot of is voluntarism. You know, we think that if there's a problem, you have to rule, regulate, bring in a law, whatever, uh, to succeed in getting a better outcome. But if you look, um, you know, at what's happened historically, generally, and it's a, a generalism, you know, people want to do the right thing. They want good outcomes for themselves and their families and their business. And, you know, I look back way back to 1977, for goodness sake, when, um, you know, we worked hard to bring in the Queen Elizabeth II National Trust as a way of farmers taking an initiative on their own without the government forcing them, without the community screaming at them. And, and that's been hugely successful. It's totally voluntary. And, and, and I see that as a as a kind of a, um, a blueprint that we ought to be pushing, you know, on behalf of farming and agriculture, that we can look after our own 
situations, thank you very much. But to do that, we have to take the initiative. We have to build the national trust. We have to ensure that, that you know, we gather up farmers uh, as we go along uh, and, you know, meet what the community's reasonable expectations are. So one of the things I would I'd be very keen on seeing this government, but particularly the farming leadership going forward, would be to foster the idea that that um, you know volunteerism works. It's, it's successful. It's proven, and it's a lot less stressful on the participants. Fantastic. Uh, oh, and I I don't disagree. But what I noted when I was in the in the hot seat was that volunteerism volunteerism uh, ideology was hated by the regulator and the government. They don't like it. And I even noticed the QE2 trust in those days being uh, the attempt at politicizing it was yeah. uh, was annoying me. And I think it probably did get a bit more politicized. Katie, you might have, an, have a view on that more recently, but um, look, they did great stuff. Um, so yeah, I'll let you comment on that, Katie, mm -hmm. maybe has it changed or not? Uh, no, I think it's really interesting. Like at the moment, there's that the biodiversity document out there around biodiversity credits, a discussion one, and, and I think you can submit on that um, by early. I think it's the third of November. So have a read and put in your thoughts. Twenty seven questions and answer them. Um, and and it's there's a mixed view depending on where you sit. I've I've been intrigued that that some people when you have a chat to them, they think, oh, actually things that are already doing those features that help biodiversity should be ruled out. So, for example, SNAs and things should be ruled out. It wouldn't be part of it. It's like, hang on a minute. If you want to shut down farmers from voluntarily putting things into things like that, that's a great way to do it. You know, create a liability for them instead of saying, here's a good asset we want to enhance and, and have more of this on property. So here's a reward versus a you're cut out of it, you don't, you don't count sort of thing. So it's um, I see potential in that it, it, exactly, but it all there's always these big systems that go around them and how to how to measure it and how to how to work it out, which is the hard bit, which is what you did with the trust right. By the way, I was about eight then, so mm. uh, and it, and I've used that at times internationally and nationally talking to people when I remind them about how many generations it is since London's had to grow their own food, which is nine generations. That's part of our problem, might disconnect, but also that farmers have always been ahead of the game and actually you were Federated Farmers was the organisation then that, that set up these things that they had a view for the future of what things what was the right thing to do and, and what was a good thing to do and what gave you some pleasure and, you know, all those other parameters that over the years has just been eroded down through to mm. you have to do this because we say and they didn't, without having had that quiet look to go, actually, you're already doing a lot of this, you guys, mm. and yeah, how can we actually thank you for it? And Charlie, you've had examples in your place, I know, of um, where you've done environmental enhancement and uh, all, all of a sudden you've had people wanting to come in over the top and say, um, that's theirs. Um, you know, how's that played out for you? Well, yeah, it's an interesting thing. So um, one, um, one of our dairy farms has a um, man-made lake on it uh, and it was created about 80 or 90 years ago by the then owner and it was a a uh, very keen duck shooter, so he created this 30-acre lake with the, where the water's only knee-deep um, because uh, if you want to shoot mallards, they're not diving ducks. They eat off the bottom, have to have a shallow water. And um, anyway, so this thing was created, and um, I was absolutely gobsmacked that my council, the Manawatu District Council, decided it wanted to um, 
it compulsorily included it and um, wanting to turn it into a significant, uh, a noted significant natural landscape, one of only um, half a dozen that they were noting in the whole district area. Uh, so uh, I got hold of them and said, don't be stupid, this is man-made. Uh, if, if, if the, if the uh, dam at the end was gone, there'd be no lake. Um, they just carried on. Um, so this this process took a while. Um, during that, um, during the process, uh, we had a very very uh, high rainfall event, which washed the dam out, and so the lake emptied out. And um, but the council just carried on. They've made this uh, much much smaller area of water now uh, a significant. You know, we went through the formal process, and the commissioner decided um, who's you know. I don't know where they get their commissioners from. This guy's a lawyer in Palmerston North. Uh, uh, decided uh, no, it's it's going to be included. So we now have this lake that used to be a, a lake that uh, isn't a lake anymore. Um, that has oak trees in it. It has um, toy toy growing around it. Um, it has uh, poplars growing in it and around it, uh, and it's called a significant natural landscape that the process is complete nonsense absolute nonsense um and so uh we had had issues with the area over the years where it was kind of lumped in with our farm and Fonterra were saying oh you've got this big wetland here what are you going to do with it so what we've done um is uh we have subdivided it off into a separate title and we're going to sell it. Um, so it's not our, our problem. We don't, if we don't own it, it won't be our problem anymore as far as Fonterra is concerned. So it's just it's ridiculous the stuff that you have to do uh, to just uh, uh, try and protect your rights and property, which property. seems to be something that's a, it's a very surprising yeah. idea to many people in days, including all the bureaucrats. Yeah, that's, and that's, that, a, that's actually why um, a lot of you know farmers all around the country have got some really interesting cool stuff on their farms and they don't let on because they're frightened that it'll get um, turned into a yep. weapon to beat them with yep. you know same here a drain that was dug years and years and years ago and we had uh, fish and game come along for a, for a, um, a day with MFE to have a look at what's going on on farms they stunned the creek and there was you know inangas and eels and, and kura and you name it all everywhere crawlies and they're like, wow, this is a really cool waterway. You know, it really should um, probably be uh, at that stage. This is going back a long time. wasn't fenced. It is now, but it wasn't at the time. They said, oh, it should be. You have to do X, Y, and Z. And uh, I said, well, this is actually a man-made drain. I said, wow, it's become a really cool waterway. It's got a gravelly bottom now. That's amazing. But, um, yeah, it's fenced off now because we're in the Lake Borough catchment. And that was fair enough because you get – we got to know. We got to admit, we've got farmers that do the right thing, and then we've got some scallywags that let us down, and that's mm. where we, you know, they always regulate for the bottom, which bottom. is really hard. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And that's not different from any industry. You know, you would have Correct. poor players in every industry, but the regulator seems to have uh, no respect for private property rights. Now we we've, we've been on for quite a while, but one thing we've not touched on, I, and I worry about this is. Getting our co-ops in check, you see Fonterra, Silver Ferns, all of these, ANSCO, having all sorts of international tie-ups, alliances, pledges, they are signing up to themselves. The most recent example has been this um, latest venture, Agri, uh, AgriNet Zero, or no, it's AgriZero. Agri -Zero. 
So it was. It began as a uh, agriculture climate emissions reduction um, organization center in February. They renamed it. They've got hundreds of millions, about sixty-five million dollars. And when I look at it, it's like all these players that have joined there agreeing that fifty percent of New Zealand's emissions are from ag. Seventy percent of those are methane. So it's not even a question of corralling our politicians, our co-ops. Are way, way ahead. Follow the science and you'll get the money. Uh, it's, I mean, it's as simple as that. Um, you know, 160 million um, employs a lot of people, creates a lot of meetings, a lot of airfares, a lot of junkets. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I think it, it gets back to what Charlie said before. And we've got our processes involved in the political side far too far. Now you can argue, was that federated farmers leading them through the door uh, or, or you know, they just assumed uh, more than they should have? Uh, I, again, I think, you know, federated farmers has got to stand really firm on this and take um, some, you know, some really strong leadership. Because, I mean, look, if, Fonterra, if Fonterra want to uh, produce milk powder that's emissions-free or or whatever, good on them. they just got to go to their suppliers and say, hey, guys, um, here's an incentive if you uh, reduce your methane levels. But Fonterra shouldn't then expect me as an open country shareholder to actually mm-hmm. meet their standards. Um, and uh, I think that's the thing that's uh, frustrating at the present time. I mean, if if um, silver fern farms want to have a standard for their suppliers, go ahead, help yourselves. You'll answer to your shareholders. But don't ask me because I supply AFCO uh, to meet your standards. Uh, I, to me, it, it's about separating the, co- the commerce from the politics. And I, the I don't even think... involved in the politics. They go to the suppliers, Don, do they? There just seems to be these agreements that suddenly, instead of, uh, you know, helping you, they seem to gag and tie you up into knots and there is nothing left. And then you also have uh, to put to, uh, to what uh, Charlie mentioned, you know, having to prove what the Treaty mm-hmm. of Waitangi had to do with his business. Fonterra is now, at this point, I believe the applications have just closed, asking for councillors, to f- appointed councillors, to fill a diversity gap. And at the email that came in, asked for councillors who don't identify as Kiwis and are not European of descent. I I was blown away when I saw that email, but it hardly seems to have created a ripple. So, Katie, I know you've got an, uh, an opinion here. Yeah, it's um the, the, well, there's two things, really. It's, well, one main thing, but, you know, it's doubling up on a lot of good work that has been ongoing for a long time around these areas. And so, you know, there's a methane hub, uh, the, the GRA, you know, there's the um, uh, the, there's multiple areas where work's going on in those spaces around the emissions. So it's like, well, now you've just created another one to uh, what are they going to do? Collect, do literary review and collect what's out there, or what what's actually going to happen? So it seems, um, yeah, a bit superficial to add another one and, and but- pull together. And as you say, the shareholders they don't necessarily the second thing they don't get asked because it'll be deemed to be non-significant Katie the regulatory pressure is not coming from the politicians this is your own co-op mm. putting it on you you you, yeah. you know you it, can't go and ask the MPs and speak to them this is coming from your own industry bodies yeah and back to that point I made earlier that actually if, as, as I just said if they want to go and 
collect a premium for this. They 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 incentivize it up by offering you some money to do it. Farmers will do it. They always will follow the market signals if they're strong and it's going to produce profit. Mm. Mm. Hundred yeah. percent. And Charlie, you've got no, you've got a view as well. So we need to let you chip in. Well, yeah, I was, I was just thinking about um, a guy that um, you and I knew when we were on the board of Federated Farmers. Um, I won't mention his name. Um, might have been a grain farmer from the Hawke's Bay. But anyway, he had this term that he, he coined that we that summed things up for all of us. And uh, he was it roughly went that um, uh, respect the people who earn their own daily increment um, and what be very careful of the trough feeders. And so um, what he meant by that, <laughs> once people, and, and Owen said it too, um, follow the money. And we've got people uh, in our own um, representative organisations, co-ops, for example, that have um, some trough feeders in there who just, they don't have, they, they have nothing tied up in the outcome at all and they're doing all this uh, stuff. Uh, back in my day when I was involved as the, in the dairy side of Federated Farmers, I became aware that there was a group of people, because they came to Federated Farmers, while they were developing a code of practice for dairy farmers for employing their staff, and it was going to have a minimum rate of pay and a maximum number of hours a week. Now, this is over 20 years ago, and um, I got hold of uh, Malcolm Bailey, who had become a director of Fonterra, and said, what do you reckon? He went, and he went, oh, BS, that can't be true. It was true. There was this bunch of people working down in a office somewhere in Fonterra who who were already out um, uh, talking to the industry about this thing they were going to bring in and no one that actually should have known knew, kind of knew about it. It's, so that's the problem we have as farmers. We need to watch out for those yep. troughs supporting to represent. Well, well, we came across a great quote last week, uh, Jasper and I, and I'll read it out. It said, economics is the study of people engaged in trade. People act as producers and consumers. In voluntary trade, people act to exchange the use of their person, their body, their mind, and their efforts to produce goods and services for acceptable compensation, money, or equivalents. People employed in governments act to referee trade between people and receive coerced compensation for these non-negotiable services. Mm. And, I mean, so many people have written uh, lines like that, but it's so true. That's all we as farmer representatives have ever been faced with, people taking unearned increments from your business. So legislative privilege, um, screwing your business up. Now, uh, we're a trading nation. We've been suckered into believing that, um, you know, we don't know enough and we need some uh, authoritarian types at the top to tell us how to trade. Um, I just suggest we should just be let to trade. But from 2001, as good as it's been for the country, having the formation of Fonterra, and I look at Southland, and it's it's been a fantastic plus for Southland's retooling of the province. You know, it doesn't matter whether it's a cow shed or a house or a tractor or or more employment. It's been fantastic. But Fonterra acted, like I used to say this, and I'll say it today, I used to say it in 2011, Fonterra has acted like the government for all farming. And we've now got more than Fonterra acting like that. We have Silver Fern. We have other uh, co-ops acting like they are the government for all farming. So we need to wrap this anyway. But look, we'll have a final whip round. What's the uh, what's the uh, prescription um, in the days and weeks ahead? Uh, we're going to get a solid centre and centre right government and bedding down, hopefully, or bedding down and 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 delivering for business and and the regional New Zealand or are we going to have um 
you know, the, the metropolitan area is dominating again. Oh, well, to use a rugby analogy, Will Jordan, representing agriculture, has just been past the ball on the wing. Um, there's nobody in front of him. The sky, the, the try line is beckoning. And if Will Jordan doesn't put his ears back and go like heck to the line, the only person to blame will be Will Jordan. I would say to, you know, if you're a, a, a farming leader at the moment, or even just a farmer, pick up the ball and go with it. There's never been a better opportunity. Uh, you're going to have to take the initiative. You're going to have to take it early, and you're going to have to take it hard, and it's going to be an almighty struggle. Uh, some of us go back to the 84, 85 period when we were on our benders, and, and people like Peter Earlworthy and, and Ken McDonald and others did an amazing job fighting back against incredible odds. Well, the odds might be against us, but the opportunity is there. The try line beckons. All I can say is you'll never get a better chance. Wow. Take it. And, and Owen, um, I think you undersold yourself there. You were right at the forefront of the 85 stuff. So, look, all power, you know, great credit to you in those eras. So don't cut yourself out of the Peter Alworthy and McDonald era. You were right there. So, Katie, what's your um, your end uh, Yeah. Um, so I was in fourth four men, so thank you for that because I've never farmed under a subsidy. <laughs> and right. it's made us better farmers for it from what I can see. Um, mm. And seeing my friends overseas, great farmers, but, you know, they they too talk as, as younger farmers now um, that if they could get out from under subsidies, get the old guys out of from under it, they'd do better, as hard as it was. But, uh, yeah. Um, and I think, yep, I agree with your sentiment. Uh if there's no changes made now that are significant, then agriculture is not going to be able to help this country going forward with the export dollars income that it needs. And one of the big threats that I've seen wandering around the world is actually localism. And we need all the all the tricks we can get in our own productivity, in our own good marketing, not taking the premium out from under us before it even gets out of the country because we're going to have to compete at, uh, and, and more and more at that level, which is at an inefficient way. For um, uh, but everyone presu presumes and believes where they live that the most effective food they can eat is right at their door, and we know that's not always true. And so, Charlie, final wrap from you. Um, what do you reckon? What's ahead? Um, uh, I think we've got Labor light uh, running the country for the next three years. Um, nothing. Things probably won't get much worse. I don't think they'll get any better. Um, it's a cynical sort of view, but I'm pretty sure that'll play out like that. Uh, and as as far as I, I would urge any farmer that's listening to this, anytime you hear any bureaucrat or politician say farmers are telling me, ask them to tell you immediately what farmers told them that, name them, and if they mm. can't, uh, I think you're telling me porkies because it's, you, you hear it often. I never believe it. I think it's a it's a it's a way of reinforcing their own view by saying farmers are telling me, and you hear it a lot. Hundred percent. Well, yeah. Thanks, Charlie, and thanks to Owen, uh, Charlie, and Katie for their view post election twenty twenty three. We've got uh, we've got some um, surveillance to be doing. Um, I know um, um, one thing that will get me exercised uh, as a person that was with some of you others uh, on the methane um, topic for years is if Andrew Hoggard and 
and Mark Cameron do not lift the current science off the table, the most recent current science about methane's effect on warming off the table and say, we've got to use this until they have that debate and bring out the people that say that, no, no, the, the physicists of the world that have written this stuff don't know much. Until we bring this to the forefront, um, we're going to be having the scrap. Now, it's to me, it's the key thing for Hoggard and um, Mark Cameron to convince David Seymour to lift off the table. And I know, Owen, you're running the Methane Science Accord. Uh, it's vital for New Zealand to get this bloody bogey off our back um, or monkey off our back. And uh, we've had it there for 25 years. So I know I'm ranting, uh, but... The prescription for New Zealand, that's number one for, from the farming perspective. Look, I've just read the blueprint for a better environment from the National Party. It says agriculture contributes 11% of GDP, 13% of employment, and 81% of goods exports and feeds around 40 million. I'd suggest it feeds, uh, if you don't want to have obesity, it probably feeds 60 or 80 million. Anyway, um, the issue is we're significant, but we're treated like um, like second-rate cousins, and uh, that's unacceptable. Uh, so, yeah, the prescription, we've had four provincial, uh, national presidents on here, including me. Um, my prescription is like yours, but we've got to stay staunch and committed and stop dignifying government processes that are negative to farming. So, Going back, I'm reiterating it. Just thank you for our guests. And we, I think, Jasper, you know what? I mm -hmm. think this panel worked really well. And I think we're going to have to have you guys back um, you know, every few months because I think we, our job is to try and get the farmer story out widely. And um, you know, I hope our listeners enjoy. Hopefully they haven't nodded off. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> thank we're you, thank you so much, we'll, everyone. We'll cut, and We'll cut that bit out, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you, everyone. And it is yeah, every few months because I think we, our job is to try and get the farmer story out widely. And um, yeah, you know, I hope our listeners enjoy. Yes, yeah, so. totally. Hopefully, they haven't nodded off. Yeah, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> thank you, cutting, thank you so much, we'll, everyone. We'll cut, and we'll cut that bit out, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you, everyone. And it is surprising that you know the. Uh, emotion being reiterated despite the blues coming on there is we all of us sense there is a rocky road ahead so yeah. the pressure has to be on can't take a foot off the throttle thank you There's so much for joining pain. us a lot of pain yeah, nice to where we need to be thank you charlie Very good. nice to see you all take care Bye. thank you okay. catch you again Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR Reality Check Radio Welcome back to Greenwashed, Don, and I hope you enjoyed that uh, panel session. And uh, speaking to Don, he mentioned to me, he says, you know, what I was speaking decades ago, the feds have not changed from that. And that is so true. Well, mostly they haven't. But, uh, you know, it was disconcerting to hear the language of uh, the current president, to be fair, um, the last week on television New Zealand sort of saying that we... We need to be, we know where we've got to go. We need, we know where you want us to be and we'll get there. You've just moved too fast. Mm. Well, I'm not clear on what the end goal is uh, unless it is full subservience to the state. And I don't want that. 
and I don't think any New Zealand farmer wants that. So um, I am a bit confused by uh, the leadership of this country's farming lobbies at the moment. Um, I'm not saying it, it could be just the language, but as you and I know, Jaspreet, language matters. It's everything. Language is also important. And yeah. I was looking at the Fed's their wish list of what do they think is needed from uh, at that point looking at the new elections mm. and their wish list talking about increasing farmer confidence uh, less red tape from the from improved rma reforms less pressure on rural communities some of these things will happen but again tech to reduce emissions where have they spoken about methane and the newer re revelations about uh, how big an issue it is or not? Hmm. Well, they could get back to base. Uh, I hope they will. Uh, with the current science that the Methane Science Accord have been putting front, and we have talked about on the show many times, uh, want to put in front of the country, want the government and the farmer lobbies uh, and organisations to actually recognise, um, would make all the stuff mute moot sorry you wouldn't need to uh, even be talking about it because as we understand it now methane's uh, effect of war on warming no matter its source is irrelevant it's irrelevant and yet we've had 25 years of beating it up so is the way forward are these organizations just going to be timid and let that current science lie on the table while the um they're saying that they have looked at the current science and, you know, we know methane's overstated, we'll get that corrected. But are they going far enough, fast enough? It doesn't look like it. And on the other side of it, as you and I have highlighted, Jaspreet, we're spending hundreds of millions of dollars trying to fix a non-problem. Mm. And that is galling. Nothing wrong with fixing issues or doing science to create efficiency in, in ruminant activity or whatever for your animals or you know, just getting another breeding value for, for ruminants but completely wrong to be chucking thousands, millions of dollars of, of our money and taxpayers' money chasing a non-problem. Why is someone, why aren't they willing to sort of address that quite, well, I hope they're going to address it quite quickly. I hope they are. You know, Don, there's this, uh, in the policy impact statement, they've written the $30,000 in increased wages impact of the new rules requiring median wages to be paid to brand new migrants. I remember, I being the sole voice talking about this, emailing a few people that time in 2018 when this was put forth. I was like, why is this happening? At that point, the minimum wage was 15 or 16, and they had put up a median of $17.70. And around me, farmers, farmers, employers were telling me, are oh, you mad? It's hardly anything. There's no problem here with this. And we already pay our staff 18, 19, 20. And I said, yes, so do we. So do we. But the point is, this is now getting legislated. And that time, no one was on $15 that we were employing. Nobody. $17, $18 was what good. If you were better, you were $20, $21 and so on. And over time, that median wage has gone up to now $30 an hour. For if you are working, say you're working, I don't know, farming, 50 hour week. So if you're working, say, 2,500 hours a year, a $10 increase is $25,000 per employee that you have risen. Because keep in mind, it's not just the foreigners' wages that will increase. You will have to increase that of your domestic staff as well to avoid a mutiny within the ranks. And for someone like us who's a contract milker, 
with five staff, it's gone up over $125,000. And a bad yeah. year, we make less than our manager. When you wonder where is the, why is someone like us going to go back on wages soon if things don't improve? And I'm not talking when I say us, I mean generally contract milkers and everyone who, and so is, you know, farm owners. But the point what I'm trying to make is, and I've diverted from it, it's not this median, uh, it's not the amount of uh, money that's going to increase wages. It is when you don't stop the regulator the first time they take a tentative step into something that's none of your business. By the time you wake up, the horse is bolted. And that's mm. what happened to farmers here. I had, I couldn't believe it. I had very people I thought were very sensible who was telling me, you're mad just for the 2018 talking about this. I'm sure you pay your farm staff more. I said, yes, but the problem is being mandated. I don't like being mandated. And that's... Well, well on top of that, that, that was all designed to have the effect that it's had with you. Um, yep. the, there was all of an absolute vintage union push to get um, minimum wages up higher so that everyone, like they talk about the floating boat and it rises all, you know, rising tide brings all, all up sort of thing. Well, that's what they've done. The trouble is no one's any better off because the cost structures of everything around us have gone even faster. So, you know, yeah. I, I, look, I listen so to this the legislation, push. this yeah. constant push for regulation well, and our being so timid to respond to it, that's if we do. And when we do, it is years and years later. We need to, you know, sort of get a shit together well, here. Well, and, and, you know, the universal basic income idea is often pushed by the left. You know, you'll hear that from the Greens and Labour. Um, it's an absolute socialist construct, um, just an, an appalling uh, scenario. But there you go. That's where we're heading with the nine-day fortnight soon and the 37-hour uh, or the 37 hour week will soon be less. Uh, we want, I, I read the other day where teachers want to get to four day working week. You know, Don, I had my babies too early, but at least by the time menopausal support <laughs> comes along, I'll be just in time for that. You know, let's look at the bright side here. <laughs> oh, there's chemicals for everything. There's chemicals for everything. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. But but the, what I wanted to draw your attention to is the feds have been doing some work in the banking space and the pressure coming on farmers from bankers, their lenders, whosoever they are. And the I think that was around the middle of the year when feds first did it. This was the banking survey carried out on May 23. And this, it showed a huge upswing in the number of farmers who were coming under pressure from the bank. In May 23, 24%, that's nearly a quarter of the farmers said they were feeling pressure from their bank. This is the highest since this particular survey began in 2015, so six months ago. This was followed recently by a call from Feds just last, last week, actually, saying that there needs to be a probe into the bank's emission policies because somehow people have made the connection that the pressure is coming from the banks because they have certain emission targets which are now being pushed further down behind the farm gate mm. because farmers, you know, we don't have enough regulations and pressure already. And uh, so the Fed's dairy section chair, Richard McIntyre, has claimed that the net zero banking alliance raises questions whether the banks are acting in a competitive manner. Mm. So Net Zero Banking Alliance listeners, has anyone ever 
come across this, spoken about this. I, what do you think, Don? Is this well, I, 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 I doubt it's uh, in the um, front of center or front of mind for most farmers. I doubt they've come across it, let alone um, homeowners. So, you know, it's it's this uh, amalgam of um, of banks trying to come to to some sort of agreement on how they'll. Uh, is this we're talking the same thing? The climate yeah, yeah, target? yes, for, yeah, yeah. So, so if so, I go very technically correct, the United Nations website says that industry led and the United Nations convened the NZBA, that is the Net Zero Banking Alliance, is a group of leading global banks committed to financing ambitious climate actions to transition the economy, the real economy, they say, to net greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. The Net Zero Banking Alliance, NZBA, is the climate accelerator for the United Nations Environment Programs principles for responsible banking and under the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. So, you know, you might have heard now by now in the last minute, I've used the word United Nations twice. I'm back on my old hobby horse. But I am so glad that the feds have made the connection, Don, that uh, mm. the banks have signed up to the United Nations Net Zero Banking Alliance and farming conveniently doesn't fit the bill conveniently doesn't fit the bill um, and i agree it's great that uh, fed farmers has opened the can on this so um let's see what let's see what they they come up with but um, so i this, sort of think yeah well i was just thinking that um the the call for a more um balanced um response from banks with regard to interest rate settings at the moment is one thing this is next level this next stuff that you're talking this, about this is absolutely next level it's in plain sight, and you will have your farming leaders, your levy-funded uh, bodies, all of them completely denying its existence. So if you look at the Net Zero Banking Alliance, which, incidentally, all of our banks, all of our banks have signed up to, it says in its guidelines that banks shall revel regularly review the targets, targets of funding only the businesses that will either uh, you know uh, transition quickly or are already at net zero mm. they will uh, banks will regularly review the targets to ensure consistency with the latest science wow and then they, they qualify it by saying as detailed in the united nations intergovernmental panel for climate change that's a un ipcc assessment reports dang so i thought we had them i thought we had them right there no <laughs> yeah i've got to the next They've gone next to the stage. next level. They say then there's additional guidance provided in the Net Zero Banking Alliance that the banks shall use scenarios from credible and well-recognized sources. And then they qualified by saying IPCC scenarios derived from IPCC qualifying models are strongly recommended. So the UN has convened this Net Zero Global Banking Alliance and the UN has said you will use our models. Mm. What could go wrong? And what could go wrong? Models have been so accurate to date, haven't they? There's, they've um, had 100% failure in everything mm -hmm. they've modeled. So, mm. yeah, what could go wrong? Yep. <laughs> and you have all the banks signing up, including this one particular perler from an overseas bank uh, CEO saying the beneficial state bank, is that even a name? The beneficial state bank is thrilled to join the collective commitment to climate action. 
This naturally aligns with our vision of a economy, a new economy that is fully inclusive, racially and gender just and environmentally regenerative. How many virtue signaling words can you put in one sentence? This man probably has got a world record here. I laughed further back, though. There was scenarios such as the IEA scenarios, the SDS or NZE 2050 scenarios, God knows what they are, um, such as shipping decarbonisation trajectories developed under the Poseidon principles. The Poseidon principles, do we know what they are? <laughs> it sounds sounds ominous, sounds like some, um, some sort of um, I mean, missile. The scenarios that the banks will select to fund you or not, shall as far as possible minimize misalignment with the other sustainable development goals. Mm. So this is one sustainable development goal, the net zero, SDG 13, climate action. Uh, yep. But everything must tie up. So, you know, if you suddenly your bank is, I don't know, like Kiwi Bank, putting up uh, everything about uh, LGBTQIA icons that it holds up as a role model for young New Zealanders to... I don't know, making up uh, diversity initiatives and all of this, you know where this is coming from. Well, it's already at a bank near you, so uh, it's up to us as New Zealanders to sort of put the stoppers on it. Uh, this stuff is nonsense, but yeah, at the and, moment, and the brakes don't seem to be going on anywhere, do they? No, and you, you look at uh, National and their blueprint for a better environment, oh, yeah. because yeah, this gosh. whole weekend I am looking at Facebook posts and other uh, commentary, and mm. Rural New Zealand seems to be celebrating. But when I look at National's uh, blueprint, lowering agricultural emissions, yeah, what does it say? We'll give farmers the tools they need to reduce emissions, end the ban on GE and GM technologies. Farm levels emission measurement by 2025. Oh, thank you. Govern me harder. Why don't you? Mm. Continued sector-led investment into R&D. So sector-led funded by who? Sector-led investment? Yeah. Oh, yes. 50% uh, or more by you um, as direct as users. But their taxpayers will also be chucking some cash in there, at least 50%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just awful stuff. Awful stuff. That's why listeners... We bat beat up methane on this. Uh, we bat, we talk about it all the time. Sorry, I tried to get that out. We talk about methane all the, all the time. The latest, the very latest science shows that it's irrelevant. We don't need to do any of this stuff. And yet we've got people feeding at the trough, continuing so you, the story. What do you call the green blues, Don? The teals? I don't know. Uh, you know. I used to say uh, when ACT had colours of bright blue and yellow, that was the most verdant green. If you mix them to together, you get a verdant green, but that didn't last long, so they've now got purple in their colour. Um, anyway, I, I don't know what blue-greens means anymore, It, other than this is a fringe of the National Party yeah. that, to me, needs to have its wings clipped. Yep. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they've got a new guy. Sorry, I interrupt. Um, their new Northland um, MP has said to a friend of mine that he thinks taxing methane is useful because uh, that will open the door to opportunity uh, in the world. Now, that's the same rhetoric as James Shaw has said for years. So I is there a tissue paper between these people at the moment? No, there doesn't appear to be. Nothing. Mm. Just absolutely nothing. And uh, 
talking of uh, other UN initiatives that we are seeing moving right now, while uh, the beehive seems to be otherwise engaged, <laughs> in another world first, scientists are going to be mapping the carbon profile of every New Zealand city or town, every single one. So that's another world first we are heading towards. Look ahead. Yeah. You know, if you think your lifestyle, they, you're going to be allowed to continue the way you are right now. You got another thing coming, especially you, Auckland. You're a C40 city, you know, where if you are lucky, you might get nine new items of clothing a year. Well, if the prime minister and his ilk were incoming prime minister and ilk are true to their words, this should be stopped to today. Stopped today. Sorry, scientists, your funding's cut. We're not doing this. Mm. This um, is nonsense. Just nonsense. Imagine we have done 0.17% of the world's gross emissions. We want to be the hey. first in the world to map every single town and city's emissions. Oh. For what? What can we afford right now? This is disgraceful, a scandal, and in fact, pretty much, it is it is disloyal to the country. It's it, Yeah, it's worse. Um, it's large, yes, on steroids. And, of course, we talked about us being the Petri dish of the world last week, and we keep doing it to ourselves. You're talking 0.17 of the world's emissions. If the correct settings were put in and methane and nitrous oxide had their warming potential to, to close to zero as they should be, guess we would have that 0.17 and it would be 0.095 of a percent. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it is so nonsensical. Totally. Another so. UN initiative, the WASP is heading out <laughs> our way. The WASP. I not actually, the bee. Not, not the, the bee. bee. The, the WASP's heading to the no. beehive. No. The WASP is the World Adaptation Science Program. The UN WASP, I should say, to completely qualify this. And uh, last week, some of you might have seen this on RNZ that Christchurch will host major climate conference in 2025. And it went on to say that at the Montreal Summit last week, it was revealed that we, the University of Canterbury, has won, won, as if it's a lot, lotto here, won the hosting rights for the eighth Adaptation Futures Conference, which is part of the United Nations World Adaptation Science Program. 1,500 people are going to be coming. And New Zealand Climate Change Commission Deputy Chair Lisa Tumahai said, the conference is focused on the ways climate change affected indigenous people. Hmm. Yeah. Well, where are you indigenous yeah. to, Don, incidentally? Uh, I'm indigenous to right here, right now. <laughs> um, um, it's intriguing, isn't it? Yeah, look, these people that save the world one conference at a time. I mean, Christchurch does very well out of this, uh, as does anywhere that runs a conference. They do very well out of it. Um, but an adaptation futures conference, there is nothing wrong with uh, learning how to adapt to um, a changing and dynamic world. It's always been changing and mm. dy you know, a, a dynamic sort of environment we work in. Nothing wrong with having technologies that um, create the ability to adapt to stuff. Look at what the Dutch have done over their lives. Massive adaptation. Did mm. they need climate policies? No, they didn't. Is climate legislated climate change an issue for them? Well, it could be now, but it never was then. It was just yeah. climate variation. Let's adapt to it. That's where we should be. 
and that's where we should stay and it doesn't need this international bureaucracy and as i said when i left feds 10 years ago the greatest job scheme ever devised it doesn't need it yeah mm. so that's the, so those are two un initiatives <laughs> that are right now going to be affecting you the un wasp conference and the uh un net zero banking alliance which the federated farmers are worried about is causing pressure on farmers something strange uh Something else strange also happened last week. The Guardian published an article worth reading. It concerned the massive insurance costs that owners of EVs are facing. And Don, since you mentioned EVs, here's yep. how the article started. It said driving an electric car should be a win-win, saving money on the planet. So Davis was shocked when the insurance on his Tesla Model Y came up for renewal and Aviva refused to cover him again while several other brands turned him away. When David did secure a new deal, the annual cost of his insurance skyrocketed from £1,200 to, to more than £5,000. What's the reason for that, Jasper? He asks quizzically. Uh, the article goes on to say that the problem seems to be the fragility of EV batteries and the enormous cost of replacing them, even if you have a small bump. But mm. whatever it is, the proposition, certainly, we don't uh, have such issues, you know, being put in our media yet. There will come a time when some of this would be unavoidable. But uh, will there be other insurances subsidizing EV owners' insurance? I don't know. Probably likely, likely, I'd imagine. I mean, insurance has just gone crazy in this last year, the, the extreme changes to to premium so um yeah while we ham up climate catastrophe and things like that we're um we're going to be paying now interestingly we've talked about roger pialki jr's papers and the uh, you know the output from him and under the honest broker this mm. last week he did he talks about and we've talked about several times around the um representation concentra concentration pathways and ssps uh, I've forgotten what that is. Socio something. So or these are climate climate yeah. models, listeners. Yeah, yeah. And so they're they're a, they're a rating system, and in New Zealand we're consistently using this eight point five, the most extreme event um, possible in terms of warming, and and so they've used that in modelling right down to local government level in New Zealand. And in this paper that he puts out the other day, um, he says at the end of it. I am not going to mince words. In 2023, giving RCP 8.5 official governmental status is scientific and policy malpractice. It will lock in the use of an implausible climate scenario for the rest of the decade, even as climate experts know better. Now, I'm going to put it, I, I know I'm going to make you un, put you in a corner here, Jasper. I think count the, your council is still working on 8.5 as are all councils in New Zealand. Yes, they are, Don. And uh, I have questioned that. And the reason we are told is simply that the councils can only work with the guidance provided to them by the Ministry for Environment. Yeah. Yeah. And the Ministry for Environment is not, it says it did its initial New Zealand inventory, emissions inventory calculations based on certain models. And it is not budging from them unless, uh, until the UN looks again, at the science and the un has said it will look at it in 2027 yeah so till then the science is settled on don't you dare insinuate anything different 
<laughs> yeah, and yet currently uh, most people in the uh, in the space are talking that it's pretty much common agree. Well, there is agreement that the policy should be on uh, SESP two to four point five, which is pretty much nothing to see here. Nothing outrageous. No need to have you all tying yourselves up in knots and spending gazillions of dollars feeding uh, the machine on eight point five. So, ratepayers, taxpayers, you're being screwed. You are. I mean, modeling. It is. There's no two ways about it. What is modeling? It's the tool of tyrants. <laughs> it is the tool of tyrants. That is it. Nothing I've else. Never, I've never heard that statement. That's a winner. Yeah, that's a good one, Jasper. There's nothing else. I mean, from the time when I heard, is it Neil Ferguson, the British uh, scientist modeler? He was the one. And correct me if his last name is wrong. I, this has just come to me. He was the guy who had the foot and mouth outbreak, who had those absolutely scandalous numbers of saying what would be the fallout. This gentleman, having been proven completely wrong there, then went on to do UK's COVID modeling. And we now have the same thing happening here. We have our COVID experts. I'm talking Susie Wiles and Arilk now suddenly moving on to climate and climate mm. justice and all of that. Funny how that works. Yes, it's funny how it works. All right, was that was it was it foot and mouth? Or was it BSE that outbreak for BSE? Could be, uh, could be BSE. Yeah. Anyway, um, I I had a note this week come to my hand that said most people don't don't understand that the IPCC doesn't exist to report on all possible causes of climate change. It exists only to report on the risk of man-made, man-made. climate change yep. and what might be done of it. And he goes on to say, um there should be an international body that reports on changes in climate. It should discuss plausible or likely causes and should discuss if the factors are transient or likely to persist, and if the latter, for how long. This should be a role for the World Meteorological Organization, but it's the principal force behind the IPCC and is no longer capable of objective discussion about climate. That's a hellish um, um, attack on, on the institutions that are telling us all this stuff. So, um, yeah, I think we've been led up a garden path internationally, in the West at least, and we've fallen for it. So let's hope the gullible, the climate gullibles just back off. The economic reality check is is not very far off. But I will again reiterate with also, incidentally, a VFF email that came before the election said radical self-responsibility, expecting to have, you know, white knights turning up and absolving us of any sense of taking onus of our own actions, of our own lives, is stupidity. As adults, that's the least we owe to ourselves, our kids, our country. And regardless of, you know, what you think, which way the elections went, and what you think is uh, going to happen, I would encourage everyone, everyone to speak up, to educate themselves a bit. Much of the stuff that Don and I speak about, I, I do realize it's not sexy, but I can also tell you that much of the stuff was stuff I didn't know anything about, say, till like five years ago, and then came kids and motherhood and all of that. So yeah, off and on. But reading a couple of articles, looking at a few reports, going to the source documents is not that hard. It is certainly not harder than letting then seeing your lifetime's work just, you know, turn into nothing, into a 
pile of shit in front of your eyes and having to walk away from all that you held dear. Well, I often talk about how people are comfortably numb and maybe we have just become comfortably numb, com- spoiled, um, nothing. It, stuff has come too easy uh, for, for us, perhaps. I mean, my parents used to think that they had it hard and I had it easy and perhaps I'm just the next generation saying the same thing. Um, I don't know. Are we, we're all just passing through, but um, it shouldn't be. There's no need. The world's got 8 billion people. It's not a threat to anybody that um, thinks about it. Yeah, we're doing okay. Um, life's not all bad. Um, and, you know, I've I've been quite grumpy today. And why am I? I've been trying to think about it as we've been talking. Why am I grumpy? Well, it's because I've got so many friends who think, the world's fixed in terms of New Zealand as of last night. <laughs> yes. I've put I've been trying to analyze that all day. What is wrong with me today? And it's because they think the world is better. Now, Fred Dagg talks about the great little country we have here in New Zealand, um, and, and the like, but it's it, it doesn't need to have this. We don't need to be living in this tension that I'm feeling. We mm. don't need that. Is it because governments want to create wider, greater tension? I think that's the game here. They want the tension to exist so that they don't. all treat us uh, differently and they can divide us. I've said this in the past, and I'll say it again until I'm proven wrong. The ultimate nightmare for any government would be a united population. The, you yeah. cannot have that happen at any cost and that is that is the name of the game but you know we're talking of comfortably numb there's one gentleman who is not comfortably numb who is going to be a repeat guest today and that is tony seabrook a farmer and from a farming organization in western australia giving us an update about certain what do i say crazy Uh, stuff that's been going on there for a while now yeah, the Ab- Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act, uh, the voice, uh, the live exports, uh, you know, the ban on live exports and um, farmer anxiety, well, farmer suicides probably in, in Australia. Um, sadly, some of them are having to shoot their own animals uh, because there's no market for them anymore. Uh, it's just, he's such a straight shooter, Tony. And he he is, I think if you saw him um, in a party or out doing a, a full-blown interview like he does with us, nothing changes. He's just Tony Seabrook. He's a straight shooter. And man, do we need a lot more of those in this country. Yes, we, we certainly do. So It's great to have repeat guests too, by the way, isn't it? I think it's uh, building up the rapport that we've rep- now been going six months in a rapport. I think we've done okay um, getting him back and we've hopefully got him hooked for sort of every three months or so. And I think on top of that, I'll just reiterate the panel we had before. um, I think that's a good idea for the future as well, because it just gets rid of the old monotone Don and the dulcet Jaspreet dominating everything. Dulcet Jaspreet. My my kids would have something to say about it. I mean, (laughs) even if you leave alone my husband. But thank you, Don. And thank you, listeners, for listening to Don and me today. We might have been crabby at times. I know I, I am. Don is himself admitting to it, but self-responsibility, personal responsibility. And I am very grateful to be living in New Zealand. I, When I look outside my window, I see my kids playing with a few chooks. And this land is what provides food on my table, you know, and a roof over my head. And this voice, I'm, I'm so grateful to be doing this show with Don. I'm grateful for him to be still up for this fight after decades of doing this. And I'm grateful to those of you who've tuned in this morning to listen. 
please join us as we speak to Tony Seabrook after this. And whatever you do, have a great rest of the week. Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app, both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing and the app is now live. You can visit the app stores direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything. From listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews and checking out the latest blogs all from the very same app. So get listening and download the RCR app now. And welcome back to RCR Greenwash listeners. You're with Jasper Eaton Don, and uh, we thought today we'd check in with West Australia and our mate over there called Tony Seabrook, the president of the Pastoralist and Graziers Association, and see how West Australia looks. I mean, we see what Australia looks like in terms of a voice, but you know, I want to know what spring's looking like down on the farm in York. Tony, what's it looking like? Oh, uh, Don, right down near the coast, the deep great south, great southern. It got a bit wet there for a lot of people, and, and and some are having a fairly good season, but most aren't. The top end of our wheat belt burned off badly. The wee crops are not harvested. Uh, we've had hot, dry weather now for probably three weeks. Uh, not a great way to finish. It's taken a lot of yield off crops uh, throughout a large part of the state. Uh, we're okay, but what could have been a really top season isn't going to be anymore, average if we're lucky. Um, the pastoral area, dry, um, Kimberley's okay, but all, all around uh, El Nino's sort of kicking in and the whole state just kind of fell in a hole at the very end. Isn't it interesting how weather is the great leveller down on the farm and uh, it happens everywhere in the world, but um, we've got politicians that think they can legislate and change the weather. So you know, that's what we're up against as well. Hey, um, so tell me about the live shipment issue that you've got over there. I read that in the headlines. It still looks pretty tenuous. Uh, the price for animals, the, um, some farmers perhaps slaughtering them on the farm rather than letting them go because they're valueless. Is that yeah. is that a reality? Don, it's, it's just as serious as you say, perhaps even more so. Uh, we're lucky that it has been a reasonable sort of finish, especially with the livestock being carried. Live exports are operating, but they're operating under a cloud. Uh, there's enormous potential in the Gulf with Saudi Arabia to take more stock, but we're really getting the runaround by the federal government. There's a great sense of, of uh, despair, certainly on the sheep industry, that the destruction of stock has started. Um, some people are advertising, you know, lambs, come and get them, you can have them. Um, you know, the, wow. the, 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 there are a lot of stock that if you sent them to, to auction, you wouldn't get back the cost of the freight. So it's the people holding back. So there's and, a great sense of gloom. And the, the the major issue, aside from the uh, live export issue, is the lack of processing capacity in West Australia. You just are so reliant on the live export trade to to take up what processing couldn't do. Couldn't. Well, we, uh, we've got an avatar pay. down there, Esperance Shark Lake, that closed a little yep. while ago. Oh. So in actual fact, um, most of the abs are working at pretty full, well full capacity, but they can't handle it. And look, as any producer would know, the difference between a mild undersupply and a mild oversupply isn't a lot in numbers, but my God, it's a lot in price. Yeah. Um, you know, the, people are giving up. You know, a lot of people, you know, they've stuck with this for a long time, but they're just simply going to say, we're done here. You know, this has been too hard for too long. And with live exports shutting down or potentially shutting down in the near future, we're kind of done here. We, we're sick of it. 
And, and I saw a headline that said the state was going to uh, fund a bit of mental health um, uh, uh, work with with farmers affected. I mean, that what does that fix, Tony? What does it fix? Well, look, I, I, in that hookup with the department, uh, we've had two so far. They're trying to find relevance. They're trying to find some of the things they can do, and there's, there's not a lot they can do. But when when you're reaching out to farmers on mental health issues, it's bloody serious. Mm. Um, We've had a fairly good run of wheat seasons, and most wheat growers are a bit a bit they're hurt by a bad season, but they know they've had a good run and, and, and they've got a bit of padding there. But when a farmer um, has to take his rifle up to the sheepyards and start shooting sheep that he's bred, and quite often they'll be older ewes that have you know, done a great job for you know, that that fellow in their time. Uh, you know, mental pressure. No one likes shooting sheep. And, uh, you know, you got a rifle in your hand, you're on your own, it's a lonely situation, you're doing a, a job you don't want to do. Um, you know, mental health is a subject people talk big, about today, but it's always there. Big issue. 1986 in New Zealand, we had similar problems where uh, sheep weren't worth, old ewes weren't worth a damn thing. And um, there was a, actually a slaughter in the main street of my city uh, to, 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 to show the country that we mean business. Um, it's it's tough down inside the farm gate, but that's the gaming that was going on then. And it's sad to hear that it's still going on in the, today in West Australia. Mm. So well, there are two farm organisations over here, and the other one, W Farmers Federation, is headed up by a fellow called John Hassel. John and I get on really well together. Uh, I crafted a letter about a week ago uh, addressed to all of our federal parliamentarians from Western Australia. John signed it. Uh, the Minister of Agriculture was asked if she'd sign it. She wouldn't. Um, and I consider that to be a, a great breach of faith that she wouldn't do that. But the letter has just asked for a meeting with all of our federal parliamentarians uh, in their own time, in their own offices here in the West, and, and to discuss what the issues are in the in the hope that they might prevail upon not the minister but Murray Watt, uh, the lawyer from Brisbane, um, he's not our target. The target is the inner sanctum of the Labor Party, and, and if we can have a, a, an amicable meeting with these people, we'll do that. But if we're not getting on, if it's not working, okay, guys, here's the deal: you want to shut us down, well then all we can do is shut you down. We will target the seats that are the most vulnerable in the best way we possibly can. If we can take one, two, maybe three Labor seats out of Western Australia in the lead-up to the next federal election, you guys are going to be in trouble. So if you want to play dirty, and, and, and if that's the only alternative we've got, that's what we'll do. Good work. Keep keep, on, keep the pressure up. That's that's what we're missing in this country from the farming lobbies, real pressure. Yeah. Uh, anyway. And another thing, uh, Tony, most of the articles that I see here for from for you guys, they also seem to begin with the fact that oh, Australia has increased its sheep flock, and that's the bigger reason for the whole glut. They're saying that from twenty twenty, oh, it's look. increased by twenty five percent. Literally every single article. Why is that? Look, we're nowhere near where we were before. Mm. We peaked out in the early nineteen nineties, and I think mm. thirty eight million sheep. We're now down to about twelve and a half, maybe thirteen million sheep. So we're about a mm. third of where we were before. Mm. Um, what did happen with the big drought in the eastern states was that we had to restock over there. So one and a half million sheep ewes left Western Australia heading east after mm. the drought had broken. So we repopulated the, the flock over there. Sure. There's no doubt about a farm. You give me one blade of green grass, you buy two sheep to put on it. Totally. And, and good seasons, you build your numbers up and then this happens and, and all of a sudden you've got to get rid of them. But the Australian sheep flock, um, I don't know the total number, but certainly in Western Australia, we're down about a third of where we were at the peak. I can tell you, New Zealand used to have 70 million sheep around 1980, uh, 82. We're now down to um, probably 20 to 24 million. 
Um, but, you know, it's perhaps been replaced by dairying um, and also cropping and vegetables uh, and also forestry under an emissions trading scheme has taken yeah. quite a significant chunk out. But anyway, let's move on to the big thing that we talked about last time. I mean, New Zealand has a similar concept uh, to your Aboriginal Cultural and Heritage Act um, called SASM, so your sites and areas of significance to Maori. But um, so we've got some similarity. but. When we last spoke, you were putting the wood on uh, on your gut, on your parliament to uh, rescind that legislation, and it looked like in the media that was the case. Um, what's happened since? We gather it's been a little. T- there's been a bit of timidness from your state premier. Look, we we got the government on the run, and I really seriously mean that. Um, they were in a spot of bother. We had no idea how close to any back down they really were. Um, Minister Booty, uh, who had charge of that bill, rang me up on, on a Monday night say, well, look, if I do this and this, how about you guys you know, we, we come across? And I think John Hassel, the other guy, WF Farmers Federation, might actually have sort of acquiesced to some of the things that, that they were demanding. I just said to Tony Booty, look, mate, we're not up for it. No, not going to happen. Either we'll, we'll win or lose, but we're not compromising. And about 10 o'clock next morning, the state premier uh, announced, okay, it's finished, done, bad piece of legislation, should never have done it, bridge too far. He said all of the things we'd been saying right up until that mm, point. Mm. And so there was the withdrawal of, of or the intention to withdraw the Act. Now, it hasn't happened. You know, that was back in August. It hasn't happened. This is still the law of the land. Now, they've agreed to revert back to an old Act of 1972 with a few modifications. Now, they could have withdrawn the new the, the new Act, withdrawn on the spot, reverted back to the 72 then work their way through the modifications and and amendments to the 72 Act and pass them through Parliament. What they've cunningly done is say, well, we're not going to withdraw the old Act until we've got all the amendments in place and we'll do it all at the same time. I consider that a breach of faith. It wasn't. Yeah, it's a breach of faith. And and, and so when they haven't withdrawn that, that Act is now in operation and you you breach any of that Act and you are in breach of the law. Mm. They could have a crack at you. The, the, yep. the larks, as they had these consultative yep. groups, that, yep. That, yep. That, that's fallen apart. But realistically, uh, the law that they passed on the 1st of July is the law of the land, and you could actually be held in breach of that law until the new Act or the Act, the, the revised one, comes into play sometime in the not-too-far-distant future. Um, the cynics amongst us had a very strong belief that they might be watching what happened with the voice referendum to see whether they could sort of tweak it a bit more or give it a bit of a, you know, a bit of a shunt their way. Uh, I think that probably now they, if they haven't got the message now, they never will. Mm-hmm. Um, so Minister Booty rang me a few days ago and, and I just simply said to him, if you maintain the good faith, if you if this has integrity and is your intention to follow through on the agreement that you, you made with us, then we won't have a problem. But don't duff around with it, otherwise the fight will be on again. They, I don't know how they even get started with stuff like this. At the point where everyone is suffering economically, they come up with a solution looking for a problem, or should I say a bureaucracy looking for a job. We have the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. We are at this point, I believe, Don, uh, the latest uh, World Bank ratings, we are in the bottom, towards the very bottom of 160 countries, and we have the governments at the same point putting on such legislation, as Don mentioned, sites and areas of significance to Maori. Again, it is just worded like you guys over there. If you are opposed to it, you're racist. That's that's a foregiven conclusion. <laughs> and uh, God knows where the private property rights go in, in all of this. 
Well, Jasper, the, the first thing is they don't like us. You know, mm-hmm. Labor, socialism, they don't like free enterprise. They don't like what we do. And they'll give us a haircut at every turn if they possibly can. That, that's just in their nature. They, they just can't help it. They don't understand the whole concept of wealth creation. Um, they sort of think that it comes to us far too easily and it's their, their job to give themselves a greater share of it given half an opportunity. So I, I sort of look at this this phrase that we have, the Minister for Agriculture, State Federal for Agriculture. Damn it, I can't think of a single minister in the last 20 or 30 years that was for agriculture. They come into these positions with, with a goddamn agenda and, and, and we spend most of our time not working with them but fighting the bastards. And it just it beggars belief that, that we can't have a, a constructive conversation with them to do things good for our industry rather than having to defend ourselves against every wonky idea that they come up with yeah they put put both hands in as as far in your pockets as they possibly can and uh if it comes out with nothing they still dig deeper looking for something more don't they it's like they they have a credit card in each pocket and in each hand and they want to max it out it's incredible but same 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 issue different place yeah look some work done here a while ago indicated that with all the welfare handouts that go to the average taxpayer uh, nearly, nearly 50, 48.5% of the population pay no net tax. They get back in all of the, the little perks and kickbacks and things, you know, almost as much, or as much tax as they pay. Then you come down to the, the person like myself and the ones I represent. Now, we are taxed at whatever the rate is on the day and, and you go, oh, I don't like that very much. It might be a third of your income or a bit more, depending. Then you sit down and you say, hang on a second, I'm paying GST as well. And, 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 I bought a couple of vehicles during the, the year and we pay stamp duty, 5% stamp duty. So there's another tax. And then there's the rates, the rates on your farmland. And I was told a few minutes ago that our rates went up 18% this year, which is not quite inflation. It's more like bloody empire building. <laughs> and so you start adding them all up with a GST and a stamp duty and payroll tax. And, and then you begin to think to yourself, oh, I'm not even getting half of this, not even half of it. <laughs> yep. Uh, it's endless. Uh, Tony, what would be your view? Uh, hopefully, by the time you know the dust settles, the voice referendum is a thing of the past. 350, 360 million, something like that, spent on uh, pushing the yes vote. What sort of ramifications do you think this should have on the politicians, the ones who very openly were in favor of this whole divide and rule agenda, mm-hmm. as I see it? Look, I, I suggested about six weeks ago that we ought to call this thing off and we should have a Royal Commission. End of story. We should have a Royal Commission. Uh, there's $100 million a day, a day, being spent on this industry. Now, the Aboriginal population, uh, by self-definition, is about 3.2% of the entire population. Now, not all of those are in desperate circumstances, you know, mm. if even half. A lot of them have got good jobs and live in the cities and, and don't need the help. When you start to work out $100 million a day, $38 billion a year for what we're getting. There are communities in the middle of Australia that don't even speak English. They don't have any, they, don't, they didn't even know about the referendum. It's just to me absolutely bloody reprehensible that that amount of money can disappear for the, the, the pitiful result we're getting. So somehow or another, we need to sort out where the money's going to. But you, you see that figure of 360 million, someone said 400 million, it's academic. This is down the drain. Just wasted. And then, then you've got all these Labor politicians flying all over the countryside and going out to the Northern Territory and living out on country. And I'd suggest that probably it's a lot more than the figure. Then there's the distraction. 
our country has not been well governed when this this has been going on because these people have been absolutely committed to carrying the day here. So, you know, the figure you suggested is probably a very, very small part well, of the overall cost. The overall I, cost have, I have no yeah. doubt. I even yeah. saw a small pamphlet somewhere in uh, on Facebook coming through my feed, which were obviously meant for children. How to talk to your dad about the voice, about voting in the voice. Oh, they they uh, left nobody untouched, did they? No, I wonder no, what sort of no. brainwashing went on in schools during this time. Well, the ABC is surreptitiously gunning for me at the moment. Um, I'm not, I can't get my finger on it entirely, but a little journalist uh, rang up and asked some questions and I thought about it afterwards. So then I rang her boss and I said, what's going on? Who wrote those questions? They are having a bit of a crack because they don't like anyone turning the heat up on mm. the ABC. But the panels, you know, honestly, you, you think that the Indigenous population of Australia is 50-50. Um, they can't help themselves. Night after night, people are tuning off the ABC, bolted on genuine ABC viewers who have been lifetime committed to the ABC are absolutely furious at what that broadcasting corporation has done. Impartial has no part to play in this. They've been so biased and so bound up in, in pursuing the case here. Um, and even now, I just watch until we start the interview here, and the lamenting that's going on, lamenting, not reporting what happened, the lamenting. <laughs> what's happened. Guys, you're the ABC. The public funding goes into this thing. You don't have a right to form public opinion. You're supposed to report on the news. Not, not You're not a propaganda organisation. Stop it. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I note Rowan Dean on um, on Outsiders always talks about effectively defunding the ABC of the billion dollars a year that they get because of their uh, one-sided one uh, reporting. It's interesting. Uh, you know, the, the censorship and the free speech laws that we're um, – yeah, that they were trying to put in to our uh, regulations would effectively put the wood on people on on, on organisations like Reality Check Radio. Serious stuff happening. So I hope you guys push back hard on this stuff because we're going to have to push back hard here. Even though we now have a change of government, uh, it's about keeping the foot on um, the, the throat because effectively the change of government, mm, the deck chairs might have shifted in the parliament, but they haven't shifted in the bureaucracy. bureaucracy so so yep. there's, there's a question that you can ask at this particular junction, and, and that is that when I stand up and say you're biased, no, we're not. No, no, we, 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 we do surveys and we're not biased. Okay, I can tell you every journalist I know on the ABC who leans left, you, you can tell by the questions they ask and their demeanour, you know you're leaning left. Tell me one, just tell me one person you've got there in the ABC, this, this public broadcasting organisation, that actually leans right. Now, mm. biased, biased to the same extent you're biased there, biased to the, even one. And, and I don't know of any. They're, they're very careful to either sit in the centre and not let on they lean left or they just plain lean left. Yeah, I've got that here in spades too. And, in fact, um, you know, the result of the election at the weekend uh, six or eight weeks ago was going to be considered you know, pretty much dominated by two parties, ACT and National, and it would have been a centre-right government, and it still is. But uh, what happened there, you could detect that mainstream media, the leftist mainstream media, wanted it um, sort of they wanted the, to get in the game because they were worried that the centre-right government would be all too powerful. So what they did is they gave a lot of time to a centrist party called uh, New Zealand First. And so what's happened is they've taken the edge off those uh, centre and centre-right parties and sort of 
the dominance of those parties has been reduced. Yeah, thank, yeah. Thanks, thanks to mainstream media's agenda to try and pull us back to the left. Now it worked; they did the job. But you know, New Zealanders, I see it. I hope other New Zealanders have seen it. But anyway, let's get back onto Western Australia and and what's happening in um, well, a couple of things. Let's finish that. That should should um, uh, uh, Prime Minister Albanese resign after the Voice uh, fiasco? Well, people are—they tend to hang on for a bit longer than they should. We've had a situation with the chairman of the Qantas board toughing it out and toughing it out and toughing it out. <laughs> In the end, uh, he resigned conditionally at the end of next year, mate. Just bugger off. You know, you got it wrong, um, and get me gone from here. I went, uh, was he get- William Shakespeare. Is he going to pay? That. Is he going to pay the ex CEO's um, bonus as on the way out? Well, <laughs> that, that's interesting. But you know, I, I'd consider that our prime minister ought to give very serious thought as to what he might do into the future. Because, mate, you attached everything, your whole self, to this in a most unflattering way. Uh, the last few days, almost begging people uh, to vote, and the, the things he said. Uh, it's just a minor thing and it won't make any difference and it's a good thing to do and if you're a mean-spirited person, you won't vote for it. But if you're a genuine, decent person, you, he demeaned himself and there's so much of him wrapped up in this. Um, I, no. I, I, he, I, he's in very deep water here and, and uh, if he just thinks he can move on, there'd be a lot of people thinking that, mate, this this is something that a, a more prominent, decent person would say, I resign. Yeah. No, I, I doubt Australians are going to forget this in a hurry. And the no, fact remains, no. these these guys are supposed to represent the public opinion, not try to not mold the opinion. <laughs> and that's what they seem to be doing all along. And I, I often, as many times I was listening to your politicians, especially Albanese, it was like, it is demeaning of a person holding the position of a prime minister. I'm glad you said it that way, because that, that, that that's how I saw it. To mm. me, he was, he was flogging it. He was flogging it. Yeah, but, and I, I yeah. saw our uh, XPM Jacinda Ardern beaming, you know, over these last few days over the election hearing, and please vote for Labour and this and that. And I'm like, God, give it a rest. Give it a rest. Yeah, well, she, yeah. she she was lucky she didn't <laughs> stick around because in, in her own electorate, uh, they got gassed and they got taken out. So, um, yeah. uh, you know, she was not popular within her own old electorate. Don, the damage that she did to your country, the, the, the smiling Jacinta, the That's smiling, it. lovely Jacinta, um, uh, creating chaos and, and mischief you know, wherever she went. We were watching. We, we knew what was going on. Um, absolutely. So, um, you yeah. know, yeah. Anyway, look, where we are here in Australia today, um, the Labor Party is bereft of the sort of people that, that might lead it. Statesmen are pretty rare and hard to find, and, and I'm afraid that the, the fork in the road where our current Prime Minister might have been a statesman, he took the wrong turn. Mm-hmm. Hey, so look, let's move on to um, the, the uh, Pastoralists and Graziers Association Convention. What uh, what uh, pearls of wisdom did you learn uh, in, that, in that convention a couple of weeks ago? Well, look, uh, Peter Dutton, possibly the next Prime Minister of Australia, um, you know, he would make a good leader. There's no doubt about it. He's all over the issues. He's a big man, magnanimous in the way he looks at the world. Um, and, and it was a pleasure having him uh, open our convention. Uh, he's a friend of the association. And, and uh, he, I said to him, look, it's a privilege to have you here. And he said to me, no, it's a privilege to be here. It's a privilege to be in front of your organisation, to be here. Um, the, the 
issue with Warren Mundine was a bit of a late starter. I've been trying to get either he or Jacinta you know, for many, many months, and, and they've been very busy people. But he he said, look, I, I'll, I'll definitely be there for sure. He is a very deep-thinking man, uh, massive generosity of spirit, a very clear understanding of the issues confronting his people with some fantastic solutions uh, as to what might be done. The problem he's got is that the elites within the Aboriginal industry uh, don't want to hear what he's got to say because their, their whole future is dependent upon the, the misery and the discontent continuing, and mm. a resolution would put them out of a job. But Warren quite simply says that welfare is not the way to do this. Welfare has caused most of the problems. It's a tough love thing. Um, these kids have to be got off welfare. The whole the whole population of Australia is living on welfare has to be got off welfare and has to be got into mainstream Australia. And as Gary John said, you know, just drop the culture and get a trade. And when I see the kids rioting in the jails, uh, drugs are probably a large part of it, but jailing these Aboriginal kids, that, that's the result of, of a very poor upbringing. But if the elders don't want white people to tell them what to do and to intercede, and they obviously don't, well, then come on, guys, get yourselves together and get these kids into school. Get them to school. For God's sake, get them an education, because with that, you can then go and get a trade. And once you've got a trade, you can go anywhere in the world, anywhere anywhere you like, a chippy or a mechanic, a welder, electrician, you've got to get a trade. And, and these Indigenous kids, you know, this living on country, that is just a recipe for the continuation on of the bloody misery. You know, they've got yeah. to be got off their country and into a trade. And, and look, I... I won't forget the expose on Sky News a few weeks ago where Jacinta Price went out to see her, um, her where her family live and where her grandmother lives. She couldn't get into um, her own village effectively. And then they showed photos of the damage someone, some crim had done or some nasty person had done to, the, to her grandmother, beaten her up. It was just horrible. Now, that's one side of the, the ledger, but that sits with me out of that expose. But on the other side of it, I saw Aboriginal leaders in some communities managing their young people beautifully, just everything going fine and swimmingly without the state necessarily being all over them. And so if some can do it, why can't they all? And, I, and look, that's exactly what Warren was saying. There is a way forward here, um, but the $100 million a day that's being spent must be spent in the wrong wrong world in the wrong place because you know this can yeah. be done so you asked me the question about the convention it was a real pleasure to have warren there um i i really hope that he he finds himself in a position uh where he has more influence he has made a personal commitment so far beyond what what ordinary people um would expect and uh, i i i made a i gave a quote uh at the end of his little presentation on the day and it goes back to 1940 uh, and the Battle of Britain and uh, the fighter pilots that saved Great Britain in, in what's now referred to as the Battle of Britain fought in the air, but if they hadn't won that one, then the Germans would have invaded Great Britain. So this this was a battle of the absolute utmost importance and they won it. And Churchill stood up in the parliament and said, never in the annals of history has so much been owed by so many to so few. So, few. Hmm. so I altered that and I said, if we carry the day here, Never before in the annals of Australian history will so much have been owed by so many to, to just two. <laughs> oh, clever. Very good. Uh, well, you know, there's a lot we could uh, talk about on all. There's a lot of things we could talk about ex over and above what we've talked about today. But, um, Tony, we need to let you move on and uh, we'll move on and continue our show. But it's as as usual, 
pleasure to have had you on. Uh, we do want to get the regular updates from West Australia. So um, look, hopefully you'll come back on in a few months' time. Oh, Don, any, any time, mate. Look, any time at all. It's always good fun talking to you guys. And and I get sort of replies and emails and things from over there directly to me. And and so there are people watching and listening, and it's, it's very gratifying. And and I did um I didn't back that horse at York Racecourse the other night. I didn't. Her name was um her name was misintention, and I thought, well, that was an omen, a bad omen name to to begin with. So I didn't back her. But I'm I'm sure um I'm sure people in York enjoyed their race day out. So oh, I, I, I didn't tell you the whole story here either. I've I've seen our titles. Those blasted racehorses kept this farm mortgaged and mortgaged and remortgaged. <laughs> my my grandfather couldn't leave it alone. <laughs> so, <laughs> Sounds a bit uh, like you done. Uh, it's a sport of kings and paupers. Uh, there you go. <laughs> no, all good, Tony. Thanks for coming back on Radio, Reality right. Check Radio. Just Breed Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio.